to Bill Mugger and Radio, broadcasting live from my basement in Portland, Oregon. Uh, how you guys doing? Um, I hope you guys are cool with a little experiment this week. Uh, Daniel couldn't record this weekend, and we're so close to Halloween. This is my favorite time of year, and Halloween's my favorite... I don't know. Is it my favorite holiday? I mean, it's, Christmas is really cool, too. But, but it felt like a shame to skip a week. We're, we're this close to the ho- holiday. And so I thought, well, what the fuck? I would reach out to you guys and see how you guys are doing. And I would talk about the season and the kind of stuff I enjoy this time of year. Not that I haven't already talked about this a million times on... Uh, like Tardy the Party and on the previous podcast uh, I used to co-host... God, what was it called? <laughs> Boy Howdy. God, are any of you guys... Did you have, any of you guys listen to Boy Howdy? Or were you guys all new listeners? Um, God, I wish I could hear you guys. I wish I could do a call-in radio thing. That would be amazing. But, um, but yeah, regardless of who's listening and who's out there, hope you guys are doing okay. Yeah, this is Sunday, October 17th, 2021. And, you know, I'm just shooting the shit. I just spent last night's drinking apple cider and watching the original Halloween movie after having just seen the new, not really great Halloween Kills movie. It was okay. This is totally bad shit. Maybe I'll talk about that later. But yeah, it's 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 the season. It's the best time of year where, if you're lucky, the leaves are falling and all kind of nice and crispy, and you can hear, you know, wind through the trees and. All that fun stuff, and the crunch of the dead leaves beneath your feet, and the smell of burning, burning leaves and stuff like that. I fucking love it, yeah. Uh, even last night, while I was watching movies, there was a little, little, I noticed, like, because my TV is, like, right next to my window, and I could see, it's not quite a full moon, but it was, like, this big yellow moon, and it was such a perfect, like, Castlevania moon, because the clouds were, you know, blowing past the moon it was so big and bright and yellow and uh, yeah it's just mm, and like while watching that and watching horror movies on the tv right next to it, it was like the perfect little encapsulation of this time of the year because i had that and i had my a little scented halloween candle and i had my apple cider and I had my movie it was so nice and man it was so it was so cozy and i love that kind of thing but um yeah so <laughs> Do you guys have any kind of Halloween rituals or anything you enjoy? Um, yeah, I don't know. It's weird because I know people. Some people really dig like the cozy parts of Halloween. Uh, some people just dig the the the, the gore hounds, really, just like the horror movie aspect of Halloween. For other people, Halloween's just you know, it's just another holiday. Who gives a shit? You might dress up and decorate the office a little bit, but you know, you kind of leave most of the Halloween stuff to the kids, which hey, that's is equally valid too. But. Um, yeah, but, you know, for, for someone like me, it's an excuse to... It's like a whole month long. It's not even just one day, it's a whole season, it's a whole month of... Ooh, you get to invest in cool... It's very ritualistic for me, maybe that's the comforting thing about it. Because I definitely have a set batch of films I watch every year, and... Man, that's as, as comforting as anything else, like... I've been watching Dawn of the D- Dead for Halloween for every year since I can remember, like, since I was, like, a, like 12 years old. Which, you know, that helps me being from Pittsburgh, where they made the original Dawn of the Dead. And so those movies were always on TV and stuff all the time, and everyone took major pride in 
have an aunt or uncle who was a zombie in one of those movies and stuff like that. And so just even watching that, especially with me living in Portland and not having been home back in Pittsburgh in the better part of like, God, it's been like 15 years now. It's a nice little reminder of home because <laughs> I get to see my old stomping grounds. Not that I, not that I visited the Monroeville Mall that often as a kid. My hot childhood mall was the Center Three Mall, which is now shuttered and all fucked up. Although weirdly, kind of speaking about Halloween creepy things, I guess the Century Three Mall in Pittsburgh is like a real haven for dead mall fans. And I, I always like Century Three Mall because again, it was that was the childhood mall I go, I go to. But I guess it's kind of big enough and creepy enough even before it completely shut down, that, like, people from all over the country were making pilgrimages to the Century 3 Mall uh, just to check it out. And it's just funny, because, like, I, yeah, that mall was always a big deal to me as a kid, but I don't... I still don't know why it's such a such a big thing to other dead mall hunters and stuff like that. And I would assume <laughs> that also, if you're traveling from other parts of the country to check out the Century 3 Mall, it makes sense that you would just take the extra five-mile journey a little further up north to hit up the Monroeville Mall, because I'm assuming those kinds of people would be the same kind of people who would be into the Dawn of the Dead, and they would want to check out the original uh, Monroeville Mall. Even though there's not a lot of left of the Monroeville Mall that's recognizable from the movie, because that thing's been renovated a couple dozen times over since, like, was it 1978 they made Dawn of the Dead? Like, the skating rink got turned into a food court and all kinds of stuff like that. But there's still, like, there's some pillars and stuff like that you can recognize from the film, like, people will even now, in 2021, will go up and be like, oh, you can see these little chips of paint, this, you can see these three chips of paint in the movie, and stuff like that, but, um, I'm rambling, <laughs> which I guess that's the point of any kind of radio show slash podcast like this, um, but yeah, so what are your guys, going back to my original topic about seasonal ritualistic stuff, uh, what are your guys, movies that you guys like to check out every year, like, what's your... Halloween Entertainment is always the same stuff. You guys try to check out new stuff every year. Um, I, I guess I tend to focus on movies. There's always like you know, kind of creepy books and, and music and stuff. You can try to find out and find new stuff for that every year. But yeah, I tend to. Hey, I, I have a very specific batch of horror movies. I tend to circle back around to every every Halloween. Usually, the core of which is the Universal Monster movies, which is funny, because I wasn't, like, the hugest fan of Universal Monsters as a kid. Um, I grew up reading lots of movies, or lots of books about, the, you know, books and magazines about the making of, and movies and stuff like that. And because when I was reading that stuff in the, what was it, early 80s, it had been 50 years since kind of the Universal stuff had been a big deal, and so a lot of the books and magazines I had... I would read about the making of movies, especially horror movies and stuff like that, were written by people who themselves, they were written by baby boomers that had grown up with the Universal stuff in the, you know, the 50s and 60s. And so I got, to lead a, <laughs> I got to read a lot about the making of, like, Dracula and Frankenstein as a kid uh, without having seen those movies a whole bunch because it was in the early 80s. Like, those movies, I think that was right when those movies kind of started falling out of circulation on, like, syndicated television. It would be more stuff like... Like, like, you might see the Hammer movies and stuff more often than you would see, like, you know, the 1931 Bela Lugosi Dracula or anything like that. And so if I wanted to see the old Universal stuff, I'd have to, have to go out of my way and rent that stuff. Which, I hate to say it, to a little kid, 
fucking black and white old Dracula and Frankenstein shit was boring as fuck. Because you can appreciate, even me, as someone who was a kid movie nerd, I can appreciate the artistry that went into those movies and how much of an impact they had about on all, you know, all kinds. Not even other horror movies, but just fantasy movies in general in their wig. But, you know, that's more something you appreciate when you're older. But when you're 10 years old, and you're... you're <laughs> man, I remember when I was 10 years old. I must have been like more like 12. Uh, my mom, she had me and a friend. We were having a sleepover, and we were watching horror movies. And we were like watching like Freddy and Jason and shit like that. And I think, I think she may have rented The Exorcist, because she was like, oh, if you want real horror, you need to see The Exorcist, because she was, I guess this Exorcist, Exorcist had scared the shit out of her, uh, although she must have been, like, in her 30s when she first saw The Exorcist, so it's not like something she had grown up with or anything like that, but, um, but she made us watch The Exorcist when we were 12, and my friend and I thought that movie was so fucking stupid. We laughed our asses off throughout that whole fucking thing. Because, like, the exorcist about this, like, this little 12-year-old girl, like a girl who's our age, which is funny, because I'm sure What's-Her-Face, who played Reagan in The Exorcist, was more like 16 or something like that, playing 12. Oh, I know. I'm haunted by the devil. I'm a little icky, icky baby girl. But, like, <laughs> she got to piss on the carpet and masturbate with a crucifix, and it was I felt a little bad because I could tell my mom was more freaked out by our reactions to that movie that time we were watching it than she was by anything in the movie itself because we were just like the whole movie just seemed like a little girl throwing a fit and getting away with it we were like is she even actually possessed or is she just like fucking with her parents and and like as especially as a little kid you don't understand all the religious implications and oh you're just like <laughs> you're just waiting for cool gore and shit to happen that movie doesn't have any of that the most that happens is like she has she throws up the pea soup or she lifts up her shirt and it says red rum on her stomach or whatever the fuck and yeah so yeah although it was weird though the one thing that did scare the hell out of me even though i'd like it's not like bloody or gory or anything that much was halloween 3 season of the witch which was, that's the Halloween movie with the masks and the silver shamrock thing that everyone, you know, that everyone goofs about. And it's it's not very good. It, Halloween 3 season of the Witch is a terrible, terrible, terrible movie. Even I kind of see that as a kid. Because it's not like, it's not that tense and so much. Half of that movie is like the characters just touring a toy factory. And that's not like inherently scary that much. Or like being attacked by robots who when they get destroyed they spit out like orange juice concentrate. Which again is more silly than scary. But yeah, the scene where they show a kid put on the ma one of those Halloween masks and his head exploded into bugs and stuff like that. That fucked me up as a kid. Because they're killing a kid live on screen. And again... Kind of what happened with The Exorcist, where you're kind of projecting yourself onto whatever's happening to the kid on the screen. Like, it was funny when Reagan in The Exorcist, when she's pissing on the carpet. <laughs> but when you see another little kid on the screen go like, I'm gonna put on my cool little Halloween mask and watch a TV commercial. And then he's like, oh, he's holding his head and he can't get the mask off of this. Fucking snakes and shit explode out of his... And it's, it's you know, the fact that like, you don't actually get to see... What's actually going on with his head? He's just holding his head and he's like, oh. Next thing you know, the bugs are exploding out. The fact that you don't see exactly what happened and it just turns into this weird old, like, biblical end of the Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of thing where bugs and snakes are crawling out of his face. 
that <laughs> fucked me up to the point that it's not that I wouldn't watch that movie again. I would, but if my 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 parents were in the room, I'd be like, I'd find an excuse to step out of the room when that scene would happen because I'm like, I'm gonna take a pee. <laughs> I'm gonna get a coke or something like that. And so, yeah, out of all the Halloween movies I'd watch as a kid with all the blood and gore and stuff like that, because I could easily watch, like, Friday the 13th movie where Jason's cutting people's heads off. And that wouldn't disturb me at all, but, yeah, for some reason, <laughs> that one stupid scene, though, in one of the worst Halloween... Actually, I was going to say, that's not one of the worst Halloween sequels. It's actually... Hmm, is Halloween 3 secretly the best Halloween movie outside of the first one, probably. It's definitely the one Halloween movie I enjoy the most. If you're talking about Halloween with a capital H in terms of, like, that Halloween franchise. God knows there's Halloween-oriented movies that I enjoy more than Halloween's three season of the witch. But like I said, yeah, the Universal stuff comes from, uh, there was a big... It's a Blu-ray box set that came out ten years ago. It was just called, like, the Universal Classic Monsters box set that had, um... I think it was like eight disc sets that had, you know, Dracula, Frankenstein, Boo Berry, Chocula, <laughs> all the major, all the major classic Universal uh, monster movies. Not all the sequels and stuff, because even before that Universal Blu-ray box set came out, like, throughout the aughts, they put out these, like, they're like double disc DVD sets of, like, The Mummy, or like Dracula and Frankenstein, each one themed, you know, that specific monster. And on the D the DVDs each had like two movies on them because I guess they were in black and white. It wasn't that difficult to actually just squeeze two movies onto a single DVD disc. And so like the Frankenstein two disc set had like Frankenstein, the Bride of Frankenstein, the Son of Frankenstein, and the Ghost of Frankenstein. Whereas this new quote unquote new ten years ago Blu-ray box set just had the original Frankenstein and another disc for like the Bride of Frankenstein, but didn't have any of the other sequels or anything like that. It was just. But uh, th that Blu-ray set was extra cool because they had gone back and remastered all the movies to be... Like, they did the full cleanup on those movies where they, you know, took out all the scratches and cleaned up the soundtrack. And even did the thing where they, like, motion-stabilized the picture, which is weird to see, like, especially really old movies from, like, the early 1930s where, like... You don't, you don't notice it so much when you're watching the live-action parts, but during the titles, you can totally tell. Like, you know, there's the gate weaving, you can totally tell that maybe the camera wasn't totally bolted down, so whoever's, like, manning the camera it's a little jumpy and stuff like that. But with these, like, Blu-ray transfers of these Universal Monster movies, they totally, like, digitally stabilized all that stuff, so it's kind of weird to see, like, the titles for Dracula. Like, like totally pixel-perfect, non-moving, and anything like that. It looks really good. It's easily the best any of these movies have looked ever. They look better than, like, even when the people made those movies were still alive, they never saw them in such a good state. And the sound is good. But the, one of the best parts about that whole set is that each movie came with new commentaries. Well, maybe not new, because I think some of the commentaries came from the DVD sets that preceded them. Because it was... With the Frankenstein DVD set, the one that had, like, the Ghost of Frankenstein and stuff like that, that had a commentary that, for some reason, the commentary for The Bride of Frankenstein, it became a tradition starting in, like, 20 years ago in the aughts after that thing came out. That, like, the last thing I would do on Halloween night would I would lull myself to sleep listening to The Bride of Frankenstein commentary on that DVD set. I don't know why. It's just, like, to someone telling you a bedtime story and... 
it's just very calming, and the guy who's reading the commentary is all just very kind of chill, and it's almost like NPR public access radio, but horror theme because they're talking about, you know, Bela Lugosi. And, well, I guess it's Karloff because it's Frankenstein. But, like, instead of talking about... <laughs> it's Instead of... Who's the guy? The fucking... Who talks about the fucking... The lake. He's from Lake... Not the lake. What am I talking about? The Lake, lake Winnetonka? He's the guy. He's all down home and talking about his shit. It's all public access radio. May your children be fat and fluffy and your wives always listen or whatever. But, like, instead of that guy, what the fuck am I talking about? Okay, wait, I need to... Let me Google this. Prairie Home Companion, that's what it is. Yeah, that guy. It's But instead of talking about fucking... What the fuck the guy in Prairie Home Companion would talk about? It's like talking about, like, you know... Boris Karloff, in order to make his face look more skeletal, he took his dental plate out so his face would look more sunken and stuff like that. And, uh... But all the, that stuff, all those uh, commentaries and stuff from the DVD sets carried over to the Blu-ray set. And, uh, yeah, it's just really good. It's just fun to listen to old horror historians just talk about old horror stuff. It's kind of the Halloween stuff where it's not like really gore-fest, scary stuff, but just like, you know, talking about Hollywood history and me being such a Hollywood special effects nerd and stuff like that. You know, talking about the early days of how they did spe the special effects are always cool. And the early makeup stuff where, you know, before Hollywood makeup guys got into the practice of like creating pre-made latex appliances that they would glue to people's faces. Like the early Universal Monster movies were all made with like like Karloff's you know everyone knows Karloff's got the big you know flat top head that wasn't like an appliance it's not like that was made beforehand they just glued it on and painted it green it was like the the the, the Jack Pierce who was the makeup guy on those movies he would just take like cotton and glue and just they would spend an hour just building a mountain of like cotton on top of Karloff's head and shaped it and put, and put like some fake hair on top of it like, you could totally see why the practice of creating pre-made latex appliances would be so revolutionary a couple decades after this. You know, it's the kind of stuff Tom Savini did. Um, because, yeah, that shit took so long. Because it's all theatrical. This is, you know, this 19... The, the, the early 1930s, back when the movies were still essentially just, like, old vaudevillian stagecraft just performed in front of the... A um, uh, uh, motion picture camera, you know, was still is more theater than it was cinema, and that you know extends to the makeup stuff. It's all just like old, you know, old timey. The same kind of makeup tricks they were doing in the fucking, you know, 1800s and shit like that. And so, but yeah, the commentaries are all really cool and stuff like that. And so, yeah, the old Universal Blu-ray set from a decade ago, all that stuff, just kind of the core of my Halloween viewing. Especially, it's really weird. It's kind of it's it's very kind of compulsive, slightly OCD, I guess you could say. That like I, every Halloween, as, even aside from the Universal uh, Universal Monster stuff, I always need to see a movie. I need to watch like a movie about ghosts and witches and, and werewolves and stuff like that. Which, granted, a lot of Universal stuff overlaps with that stuff. But that's why. Well, I'll talk about that in a bit. But Universal Monster stuff. One my one last note about that. You guys should definitely check it out, especially. Uh, the, these two movies aren't my favorite. My favorite Universal Monster movies are Bride of Frankenstein, just because it's very kind of wry and, and funny, 
and the Invisible Man. That's the one with Claude Rains, and Claude Rains is so fucking good at that. And the same guy, James Whale, directed both The Bride of Frankenstein. Well, he also did the original Frankenstein, but he did The Bride of Frankenstein and The Invisible Man. And he was the one universal horror director who had, like, a real wry sense of humor, and so those movies are kind of fun. Like, legitimately fun, not just like, oh, it's kind of cool to watch from, like, an anthropological perspective, but there's some funny, especially Claude Rains, where he's, like, as the Invisible Man skipping down the street and he's singing a little song and scaring people and stuff. It's very cute. But uh, the commentaries on those are good, but <laughs> the two movies I kind of care the least about, um, The Wolfman and The Creature from the Black Lagoon, are the movies with the two best commentaries, because there's a guy named Tom Weaver... Who's, he's like from New York or something like that, but he's got he's got this real smart ass smart ass sensibility to him, where unlike most movie commentaries that are all very kind of dry with prepared notes and stuff like that, where the person is just essentially kind of reading a Wikipedia entry about you know this movie this part of the movie was made like this. Tom Weaver his commentary for the Wolfman and Creature of the Black Lagoon is a little more off the cuff and. He'll talk about different conflicting stories about how movies are made, because all movies are like that, where there's always kind of tall tales about, like, supposedly, supposedly this person had to film this scene wearing nothing but their underwear and 30-degree weather and took them 10 hours to film it. And But then there's conflicting stories about this person says this mo that scene was filmed in this other way and stuff like that. And he'll tell you the two different stories, but then he'll be like, hey, you know what, I think the first person was full of shit. <laughs> because there's no way you could do whatever. And so it's nice to hear like someone give a commentary where they're actually giving you your opinion about how he about who he thinks is 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 spreading bullshit about like whatever the legendary stuff about the movie is he'll he'll give you his honest opinion about how he thinks it actually went down but not like in a nerdy comic book guy from the simpsons kind of way but just in a very kind of factual like i talked to enough people like like he tom weaver i guess he's he's written enough books about horror stuff and talked to enough people that he seems to he says kind of the inside line about how a lot of that stuff went down back in the day so it's just kind of funny and ryan and funny stuff to listen to. But, speaking of things that are not universal, like I said, I tend to... <laughs> I always need... Yeah, there's like essential Halloween vitamins and minerals when it comes to the movies that I... That are, I always throw into the, the, the hopper for the things I have to watch every Halloween. So, yeah, I need... Aside from the universal stuff, I need at least one vampire movie. I need one ghost movie. I need one witch movie. I need one werewolf movie. And so, uh, my, my two go-to vampire flicks are always Bram Stoker's Dracula and Interview with a Vampire. Um, those, I don't know why those two specifically do it for me. I've always liked Bram Stoker's Dracula, um, because, I mean, it's a mess of a movie. But I, kind of going back to the stagecraft thing I had mentioned before, I appreciated that they tried to make a horror movie... Oh, man, especially, like, oh, God, that came out, like, in 1992. And so that was just as digital effects were becoming a real big thing. I mean, it's just, that was a year before Jurassic Park. But I appreciate that in 1992, they specifically went out of their way to be like, we're going to try to make a movie, like, if, if we were making this movie in, like, 1910, like, how would they do the special effects? And they tried to do it that way. Where Again, it's more stagecraft than it is, like, special visual effects like they didn't get industrial light magic to work on it even though there's one or two there's i think the blue smoke rings in the movie are kind of super impositioned. In, in, in it's not just like glass you know because all this the all the special effects 
and perhaps Joker's Dracula are all like literally ropes and mirrors and smoke and Pepper's ghost glass shots with like playing around with reflections and stuff like that. A couple in-camera matte paintings. Love the design, man. Bram Stoker's Dracula has got the all-time best Dracula's castle because it's just like a giant dude in a chair, like sitting in a throne that's kind of crumbling and falling apart. It's such a weird idea for a castle, but that's what it looks like. I always thought that looked super fucking cool. And the costumes are gorgeous. I guess uh, Bram Stoker's original, not Bram Stoker, Francis Ford Coppola's original idea for uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula would that they would be they would try to use as minimal costumes as possible. Uh, <laughs> costume, they have everyone butt naked, titties hanging out. They were trying to use as many minimal sets as possible. Like I think the original idea was like most of the scenery in the play would just be a black void, and but that the characters would be wearing these hyper elaborate costumes. Just as a, I, it's probably as much a cost-saving measure as anything else, but I think, uh, was it Sony, who was the studio behind there, like, no, you need to actually have real sets. And so, but they still, they, uh, he got, Francis Ford Coppola still got, like, a crazy costume designer, some Japanese person, I can't remember their name, but still, designed some pretty elaborate costumes, especially, uh, Gary Oldman's, uh, his, his warrior costume at the beginning of the movie, which is obviously plastic, they could have done a better job in the movie, not just making it just obviously like vacuum formed plastic, but it's designed to look like the muscles of like a wolf. So it's kind of crazy and cool. And I mean, yeah, the acting is terrible because it's got Winona Ryder and fucking fucking Bill and Ted. But oh, the score though, the score, man, that's one of my favorite all time horror movie scores is Bram Stoker's Dracula. Because they got the Polish guy named Wojak Minsky, or whatever the fuck his name is. And this cr really beautiful, lush, creepy score of this like, this vast orchestra. Everyone's heard bits and pieces from the score from Bram Stoker's Dracula. Even if you didn't even know what you were listening to. Because the main march got used for a thousand movie trailers for the rest of the 90s after that but the rest of the score is fantastic too it's like there's the, some parts of the movie deal with like drinking absinthe the green fairy that like psychedelic green drink from that was such a big deal in like turn of the century french fancy artsy culture because um, i guess it was like a not psychosomatic psychedelic or something like that and, uh, but the music does a good job of representing that kind of, like, swirly, I've never dropped acid, but I could imagine what it's like, because I've seen Bram Stoker's Dracula, when they drink the green fairy, the absinthe, and the music gets all, it's like little fucking, little chimes and shit, and like little music box playing and shit like that, it was really cool. Like, wolf sounds on the soundtrack and stuff, it was really cool, I like it. Um, and, Interview the Vampire! I like that movie! It's gay, and I love it. I love, like, again, a movie with a slightly goofy cast because it's got, it's got Cool World in it. Uh, and, of course, the big thing back in the day, I didn't realize I would go end that talking about every goddamn movie. But it's got fucking, it's got Mission Impossible, and I remember, of course, the big kerfuffle back in the day was everyone's like, oh, my God, how can Mission Impossible, which is a movie series that won't come out for another six years, but, oh, my God, they got Mission Impossible to play Lestat. But he's actually a really good Lestat. Turns out the fact that, like, Tom Cruise is a creepo weirdo in real life kind of works for the fact that he had to play Lestat. It's just, 
back in 1992. Well, no, that was like 1994 because that came out the first year I was in college. The one year I was in college before I got kicked out. Um, I, man, I went to go see an interview with a vampire. I saw it an opening weekend. It was the one half semester I was at art school before I got kicked out because I, I chose a really shitty art school to go to. But I had some friends that I had made at this art school for the six, like towards the end of the six months that I was there. And the, the the people who lived in the dorm next to us in in the school dorms, there was this lady. She was a, she was a huge Anne Rice fan, and she had read the, all the books, and she was like really wound up about that adaptation because she was one of the people who was like really upset by the by the fact that got Tom Cruise to play Lestat. But I remember afterwards, she was so upset because they pronounced Louie. As Louie, that's the character played by Cool World, and she's like, his name is Louis, it shouldn't be Louie. And I guess she didn't know that, that, I guess that's an acceptable French pronunciation, like, of Louis, it's not always just Louis, since <laughs> so I just, that's my abiding memory of seeing Interview with a Vampire in, in a theater. But, like, that's also got a kind of cool score, and that's got a good cast, it's got Antonio Embarrass, and <laughs> Antonio Embarrassment. Antonio Banderas, and it's, it's got, who's, who's the Irish guy? He plays the vampire and gets cut in half by Cool World. Man, this doesn't make any sense. This is what happens when Bill makes his own radio show, is that it starts degenerating into shortcuts. Verbal shortcuts that only make sense to me, so I'm like, that vampire who gets cut in half by Cool World, you know what I'm talking about. That doesn't make sense to anyone if you're not Bill Mudrid. A fucking, uh... Cool World, the guy who played fucking, uh, who got, who was married to Angelina Jolie? He's the main case, he's, he's Louis the Vampire. He goes to Paris, and spoilers for Interview with the Vampire, but all the French, par uh, uh, the Parisian, uh, vampires, oh man, they, that naked blonde lady they kill on the stage, all kind of fucked up, but they kill, who's the little girl's name? Little girl vampire, best friends with Cool World. They kill her, and he goes nuts. But the Irish actor, who's the guy with... Oh, man. I should have Google up. If only I had access to a giant <laughs> global database that could tell me any information I want. Interview with vampire cast. This is why I'm not allowed to do movie commentaries, because half of them would just... Stephen Ray. Ray. Stephen Ray? Uh, he's just, he was in a whole bunch of stuff in the 90s, and then it kind of disappeared, but he plays Santiago the Vampire. Anyway, I just like Interview the Vampire. It's really good. It's my other default vampire Halloween viewing thing. Oh, God, what else? What are you guys? What's your guys' defaults? Assuming everyone operates exactly like I do, where you have, like, default vampire movies for Halloween. What are your vampire you guys want to hear more news? You guys want to hear what my zombie movies are that I watch every year? I got two of those, too. I watch Dawn of the Dead and Return of the Living Dead every year. Um, Grant, there's a bazillion zombie movies available, but Dawn of the Dead, I already talked about Dawn of the Dead. Grew up in Pittsburgh, that was a default. That's almost general issue horror entertainment if you grew up in Pittsburgh. Uh, but also, uh, Return of the Living Dead. Return of the Living Dead... Um, man, if you're listening to this, I can't, I, I don't know if people listening to this podcast would, would you guys know or care about Return of the Living Dead? Return of the Living Dead is kind of a pseudo-sequel to the original Night of the Living Dead. Although, this is one of my favorite things, I hate zombie movies where the zombie movie takes place in a world where no one's ever heard of zombie movies before. 
Like, you, there's so many zombie movies where people are like, Oh, those creatures, they're attacking us! No one ever wants to use the word zombies. For some reason, that's kind of an issue in Shaun of the Dead. Uh, that's actually another good. I don't watch quite... For some reason, I don't make Shaun of the Dead. That's never made my... I have to watch it every year, zombie list every year, like Dawn of the Dead and Return of the Living Dead. But that is a plot... Not even a plot point, but it, that, that does get mentioned in Shaun of the Dead. That someone calls him a zombie, and then someone else is all like, oh, don't call, don't call him the Z-word. I don't know why the word zombie has issues with some horror fans. I know zombies! Anthropologically, that's a thing where the term zombie predated the, you know, George Romero, like, a zombies, like, in the undead and stuff like that. Zombie actually has real-world connotations that are not <sighs> necessarily supernatural, I guess, but for whatever the fuck am I talking about? Return of the Living Dead. I like the fact that Return of the Living Dead starts off with someone telling another character these two guys are working in a medical warehouse, and there's this old guy who's teaching this new guy, who's a brand new hire, about the ins and outs of how this uh, medical warehouse works. And he talks about that, he starts at the very beginning of the movie, he's talking about that they've got some corpses in the basement that were left over from the real-world events that inspired the creation of Night of the Living Dead. According to Return of the Living Dead, um, some chemicals got spilled by the military in Pittsburgh in like 19 in the, in the mid 1960s that reanimated a bunch of corpses in their coffins. And I, I don't think the insinuation is that like the corpses came alive and ate people, but it was just like a weird scientific thing that this movie posits is like that inspired George Romero to like make a movie about zombies actually bursting up from their graves and stuff like that. So it's nice to see a movie where someone will be be like, hey, have you seen these other zombie movies? Which is funny, because Return of the Living Dead was created by, um, I think it was produced by George Romero's old producer who had worked on Night of the Living Dead and, and Dawn of the Dead, because after, I think after Dawn of the Dead, George Romero split with his producer, and they split the rights where George Romero got kept the rights to keep on making zombie movies with, like, a time of day in the title, so that's why he wound up with Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and Day of the Dead. And his producing partner kept the rights to Of the Living Dead. So that's why you've got Return of the Living Dead, and Revenge of the Living Dead, and all kinds of stuff like that. So there's, like, two weird parallel Living Dead movie franchises that spawned out over the original Night of the Living Dead. And Return of the Living Dead is the first of the Living Dead franchise. It came out in 1985. Ironically, the same year that the sequel to Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, actually made by Romero, came out. But, um, yeah, no one really likes Day of the Dead very much, even though that's Romero's movie. Um, it's very sad and depressing. And Dawn of the, De De Dawn of the Dead's kind of funny. You know, that's the one that takes place in the mall. And even though that came, came you know, by nature, by being... By virtue of being a zombie movie, it's kind of grim and fucked up. But it has its, you know, this is fun sense of humor. So there's a goddamn pie fight in Dawn of the Dead, for Christ's sakes. Whereas in Dawn of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead is all about just a whole bunch of... It's a military underground facility in Florida that's being overrun by zombies. And there's no real fun to it. It's just really sad and depressing. And it's not a fun watch. It's an interesting movie. with the, Actually, the, the, the zombie effects in that movie like beat the shit out of the zombie effects in Dawn of the Dead. But... Um, that's neither here nor there, but Return of the Living Dead, it's all punk rock. Return of the Living Dead, I think that that's the first zombie movies to popularize the idea that zombies eat brains. 
Because before all zombie movies, zombies just eat people. They just ate people just to eat people. Because I guess they need food that they're always hungry. And Return of the Living Dead posits that zombies, they like to eat brains. Because somehow brains contain some kind of, kind of chemical that will temporarily relieve the undead of the pain of being dead. Because being dead hurts, because you're rotting and falling apart all the time. You're decaying from the inside out. So I guess eating brains gives you a little bit of a high that just distracts from that for a little bit. Which, that's kind of... And on top of that, the Return of the Living Dead zombies, they're the first real fast ones you see in a movie, too. Because they're super fast, they run, they haul ass. And they're almost indestructible. There's a whole gimmick at the beginning of the movie about how... This first zombie that the two guys at the medical warehouse have to deal with. Um, they, because they live in a world where zombie movies exist, they're like, oh, it's a zombie. I mean, they're, they're more freaked out by the fact that it's a zombie. That it's not like they're just like, oh, it's a zombie. They're like, holy shit, it's a zombie. But they're like, okay, all we have to do is destroy the brain and cut its head off. And that'll kill the zombie, which they do. But that doesn't kill this zombie because for some reason in this reality... Um, zombies keep on coming, even if you cut off their heads and destroy the brain, they're like, constituent parts will still keep on coming after you. So they chop off, the <laughs> chop up this first zombie, and its body parts are still wriggling and trying to get at them and shit, and that's the start of the movie. The movie just gets like, even crazier from there, but like, yeah, Dawn of the Dead, Return of the Living Dead are my two go-to zombie movies, and man, I've been, this whole time I've been watching, Dawn of the Dead is weird too, because like I said, Dawn of the there's rights issues to the Dawn of the Dead movies that are kind of kerfuffled and in the United States. Uh, again, one of George Romero's producers hold right, holds the rights to Dawn of the Dead, so it's been out of print forever. But in UK, I guess they just put out a really fancy multi-disc 4K box set of Dawn of the Dead with like, like, like four different cuts of the movie. Um, about 15 years ago... Uh, someone had put out a really nice DVD box set of Dawn of the Dead here in the States, and I think this is the last time Dawn of the Dead has actually been reissued in the United States. Uh, and that that four-disc box set, has, again, it has all the cuts of Dawn of the Dead, because there's, like, a domestic cut, there's an international cut that, like, Dario Argento put together, there's, like, an unrated domestic cut, and each of those cuts of the movie have these really great commentaries with, like, George Romero and the cast and stuff like that. And there's two, like, feature-length documentaries about the making of the first Dawn of the Dead in that box set. And, um, yeah, I've had that set for almost, like, 20 years now, and I've, I ripped that and that's dumped those files into my iTunes. And, like, I just watch the shit out of that whole box set every year where I'll, I'll watch every version of Dawn of the Dead, listen to the commentaries. And especially the commentary for the United States theatrical version of Dawn of the Dead is great because that's the commentary where it's, it's George Romero and Tom Savini and just really the core group just really dishing about the making of that movie and stuff like that. It just, again, kind of from being from Pittsburgh, they're talking about like old kind of Pittsburgh stuff while they were making the movie. And and they talk about people who, like, I, I, I took a film class from one of the Booba brothers and the Boobo brothers uh, were two guys who worked on the movie. Uh, was it was a... I was it Tony Booba is the guy he plays the biker in Dawn of the Dead who gets his arm ripped off in the um, pulse checking machine and his brother taught at Pittsburgh Filmmakers and I, I took some classes from his brother oh, it's just Pittsburgh stuff but yeah anyway that's neither here nor there uh, my werewolf movie every year is American Werewolf in London there's not a ton of werewolf movies there's like ginger snaps there's the Howling, 
I guess, uh, what was it? Uh, not Phil Tippett. Joe Johnston. Uh, the industrial light and magic guy who went on to, to direct uh, The Rocketeer. I guess, like, in 2010, he made his own Wolfman adaptation, a remake of the Universal Wolfman, that no one seemed to like, and I've never seen it, because that seems like too much of a heartbreaker to know that's that's supposed to be terrible that I never subjected myself to it. But American Werewolf in London, despite the fact that it's made by a professional child killer, <laughs> fucking John Landis. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's, even aside from the fact that it's a werewolf movie, it's just one of my favorite horror movies in general. I just love the tone of it. Again, it's a movie that does a really deft job of mixing horror with comedy, and it's got a great soundtrack. It's like I got like 15 different color, color covers of Blue Moon shot through the soundtrack, and yeah, it's about just two guys who are just vacationing in Europe, and they're backpacking through the, the like the Scottish Highlands. And I guess I guess it's not Scotland. It's it's, it's Northern England. I guess they're kind of close to Scotland. They get attacked by a werewolf, and one guy gets killed, the other guy, he gets bits, and he doesn't want to confess up to the fact that he's becoming a werewolf, and the ghost of his dead friend comes back to tell him, like, you gotta kill yourself, otherwise you're gonna turn into a werewolf and kill more people, and of course the main guy doesn't want to kill himself because he thinks he's just going crazy and doesn't want to think that, you know, that's a whole thing, but yeah, just the tone of it is really nice, and th that's another movie with a great cast. Love Jenny Gutter, who plays the romantic lead. And it's a really creepy movie. It takes place over just like two or three days, early 80s England, so it's kind of early Thatcher punks and kind of stuff like that. So it's a great just time capsule, a very specific time and place of early 80s Thatcher uh, England. And yeah, it's just really cool. And yeah, I, I, yeah again, I'm, I'm a sucker for any movie that mixes comedy and horror and... Yeah, that's some cool makeup. And the makeup effects, that's, uh, that's the big thing. Rick Baker did the transformation werewolf effects. Well, he did all the makeup for the effects for the movie, but American Werewolf 1 has that now very silly-looking transformation sequence that I know my entire lifetime has always been held up as, like, this is the apex of werewolf transformation in the films. But <laughs> you watch that shit now. That shit looks silly as shit. The fucking guy holds his hand up, and his hand is, like, artificially stretching in a way that just look, looks like just looks like a prosthetic toy that's... And, like, his snout comes out, and, like, I appreciate what they what they were doing with the... You know, they only had so many tools and stuff back in the day, but now... <laughs> Even when I saw that as a kid, I was like, this is a little silly looking. It's very ambitious, I, I'll give him that. Um, the craziest scene in the movie is probably actually when, after the werewolf guy, he gets bit and he's like slowly turning into werewolf. Um, he has a nightmare where he's at home, back in America, like watching TV with his little brother and sister. And like, <laughs> Nazi monsters come in and shoot up the place and they smash a TV while it's playing the Muppet Show. It's just very lurid and weird, but I always liked it. But, yeah, that's my werewolf movie, American Werewolf in London. Go check it out if you haven't seen it already. I'm sure we've talked about it on Tardy the Party podcast, because I'm sure Daniel had never seen it before. Crimson Peak is my ghost movie. God knows there's shitloads of ghost movies out there. Even the fucking... I tried to watch the fucking Paranormal Activity stuff, and that was kind of silly. You got Amityville Horse, you got your Poltergeists, you got your... What's the one with Nicole Kidman? The Others, which that's good. That's good, too. You got a ghost story, A24, boring as shit, lady eats a pie and throws up all over the place. Um, but you got Crimson Peak, recent addition to the Bill Mudgeon film canon for Halloween. Really good. I'm not the world's biggest Guillermo del Toro fan. 
Um, I appreciate his craft, and I appreciate his embracing the pulpy nature of horror stuff. He's not worried about, like, classing it up because it's not taken too seriously. He's, he's fine with just like, okay, this is just a goofy pulp story, and just let it be that. But, yeah, something about his storytelling sometimes being kind of slack. And so, I don't want to oversell Crimson Peak. Because it is, again, it's just a pulpy. It's more like a romantic thriller than it is like a monster movie or horror movie. There's not that much blood in it. And there's some violence. But even if you look at the trailer for Crimson Peak, there's some like red ghost skeleton zombie ghost things. Technically, those aren't even blood. It's not even bloody ghosts. Technically, it's red clay, because Crimson Peak turns out to be... Spoilers for Crimson Peak. Turns out to be this, like, decaying British mansion that's built on top of this red clay a deposit that the, 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 the mansion's, like, slowly sinking into. And the whole point of the story is that Loki, um, Tom Hiddleston, he plays... Uh, there's a brother and sister who, uh, they own this British mansion, and their parents died when they were young, and... Yeah, they're kind of preying on young, innocent women with money to try to keep their fortune together and try to keep their house from sinking under the ground. And they happen across this lady in, like, Buffalo, New York, and, like, it's, like, 1899 or something like that. And, um, yeah, Loki kind of suckers her into becoming his new wife. And so this girl from Brooklyn, or from uh, Buffalo, she moves to this decaying British house in the UK, uh, which is called Crimson Peak. That's a whole plot point. But, uh, and so it's about her discovering what's going on in the house. And man, that house, aside from just being a good ghost story, the, the house and the mansion, the decaying British mansion in fucking British, uh, in, in Crimson Peak is the best haunted fucking house set. I've ever seen in a movie. It's fucking huge. There's a hole in the ceiling, so like fucking snow's coming down in the middle of this house, and like all these rooms with all these kind of different architecture. It's crazy shit, and they've got a giant like fireplace and a little kitchen and a mine beneath the house, and all kinds of crazy shit up in the attic. And it's just like it's a cool environment. And they actually built all that. It's it's not like all CGI shit, but like they actually built. And I think they built it so, like, all the sets, because, like, there's one main interior foyer where that's kind of obviously the big set that leads off onto all these other rooms in the house. Where, like, yeah, that's snowing in, 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 in into the main foyer and everything because there's, like, the roof's been decaying and stuff like that. And I think they even built all the side rooms, or at least most of them, that they actually lead out at, like, because there's parts in the movie where people run out from a bedroom out into the foyer. So it's not even like they had a whole bunch of smaller individual sets for the mansion, but it's like, well, just one big interconnected set and just fucking gorgeous and the production design is good. And yeah, a ghost story. There's ghosts in it and it's really fucked up. And I think, man, I want to talk about, I'm sure, man, if you, you, you listen to this, you probably heard me already gush about this on Twitter, but I, the, the, the main monster in Crimson Peak, I think is, is because Crimson Peak was financed by Universal. I think it's right up there with the ghost monster and you Crimson Peak is right up there in the Universal Monster canon with like Dracula and Frankenstein. In fact, that's the kind of one thing you're missing from the old Universal canon is they never really made a ghost movie back in the day. You have vampires, werewolves, Frankensteins, but you don't have a ghost. And but they yeah, had the main ghost character from 
from uh, Crimson Peak, I definitely, I think retroactively kind of fills that spot, so. Yeah, so I guess it all still, still comes back to Universal Horror one way or the other. And uh, my witch movies, uh, Blair Witch and uh, The Vovovich. Man, Blair Witch. Blair Witch. Man, talking about a movie that's love it or leave it. So many people... I'm kind of surprised at the number. How that movie... That is such a litmus test for people. Because I know people who don't give a shit about horror movies and don't care. Never, like... They'll watch, they'll watch Blair Witch and be like, what the fuck is this garbage? Whereas I've seen seasoned pros who have seen all the horror movies that are out there watch watch Blair Witch, and they are just terrified of that fucking movie. While, like, you know, their grandma, who doesn't give a shit about any horror movie, will sit down watching and go, like, what the fuck are you watching? Turn this shit off. It's fucking stupid. Um, I'm definitely in the latter camp. Although I was lucky enough to see an early screening of the Blair Witch Project. Uh, like, two weeks before it came out, for some reason, I had some friends who worked at a radio station in Pittsburgh, and they would sometimes get free tickets to early uh, screenings and stuff. And so we got tickets to see it before. It was right when Blair Witch was first being posited as an, a found footage actual documentary. And we'd barely heard anything about it. All just distant rumors and like the free weekly paper about like, there's like new documentary called Blair Witch that's supposed to be like about a real witch that killed some people. And like the documentary like, has some kind of found footage from like, when the kids went out to, the, to find this witch ghost, I guess that like I guess Blair Witch is a ghost movie too. I guess I could lump that in with uh, Crimson Peak, but whatever. But yeah, we got to see it before we really even knew what Blair Witch was. And that audience, in terms of like an audience being fucked up by a horror movie, seeing Blair Witch two weeks before anyone really knew what it was is was one of the most insane movie going experiences in my life because that audience was vibrating with fear because everyone was like what the fuck is this specifically my friend rachel was sitting next to me and she was just about to implode because she because for all we knew we were watching real kids getting murdered on that t on that that movie screen if you didn't know any better because they did a pretty good job of of presenting it as like these are real people you know, getting fucked up, and, like, even though there's no blood, no violence in that movie or anything, well, I guess there's a little tiny touch of blood, but, like, for a movie where, like, nothing really kind of happens in it, man, that fucked up a whole, I think, I think, I think part of it, if you're the kind of person who grew up, like, watching, like, Unsolved Mysteries or, like, In Search Of, like, and your imagination was already kind of primed by that stuff as a kid, I think Blair Witch can really fuck you up. Even though nothing really happens, it's all just, like, emotional manipulation, but, like, yeah, I still, yeah, that, that that's that's still a really creepy movie to me. And even though it's not really a witchy movie, because you really don't even see the monster or anything, and, like, you never get to see the Blair Witch, it is technically about a witch that's, you know, hunting the kids and stuff, and, yeah, I made a couple dumb sequels after, like, what, that's one of those things where they made a sequel less than a year after the first movie came out, and it was great because it was, like, a studio, like, because the whole point of the first Blair Witch movie was made by, like, three people in a forest for, like, $20,000, and then they came out with, like, a big studio sequel a year later, like, Blair Witch 2, Book of Shadows, which I only watched recently, I can't remember if I watched for Retired at the Party, but I did watch it just, uh, and it is fucking... It is disgusting how fucking awful it is. And then, just like a couple years ago, they came out with, like, I think it's just called Blair Witch, not even Blair Witch, where they had, like, the little brother 
if one of the characters who got killed in the first movie is like looking for the Blair Witch, and that's not a hell of a lot better, but yeah, but Blair Witch is pretty good, but the Vivitch, I love the Vivitch. It's not very scary, but I love, it's one of the most gorgeous horror movies I've ever seen in my life. Um, isn't the director of the Vivitch, I remember something about how, maybe I'm misremembering, but I thought he had been a costume designer, which explains why the costumes in the Vivitch are so lush, even though it's just a bunch of, like, pilgrims living out in the woods. Not even a bunch, it's just a small family, it doesn't even have, like, a big cast or anything like that. But, like, very kind of striking costumes, especially at the beginning, we get to see Anya Taylor-Joy. Like, she's dressed in kind of, like, her fancy pilgrim costume. It's, like, the first visual of the film. Like, a very kind of striking costume design and stuff. And, yeah, um, I'm kind of surprised at how much I dig, uh, the Vivitch these days. Especially when I first heard about it. When I first saw the trailers for the Vivitch at the movie theater. I, I'm sorry, I cannot refer to it as anything but the Vivitch. Because that's the title! I can't call it the witch, it's the Vivitch! Look at the, how that they, they typed it! It's not my fault, it's their fault! But I remember seeing the trailer for the Vivitch and thinking, like, okay, that seems cool. That's gotta be, like, a social horror movie because the way the trailer... Well, the way I parsed the trailer was that is obviously about a girl who is an innocent girl who is being terrorized by her idiot, you know, 17th century family who thinks that she's a witch. And I thought the whole point of the movie was gonna be the, like... This religious fervor has driven, like, I thought the horror aspect was gonna be that her family's going nuts and she's an innocent person. And, like, religion and social insanity was gonna be the villain of the movie. No! Spoilers for the bitch! They play it totally straight. The devil is real. Shit's going down. And it's not a social horror movie. Her family's absolutely correct in thinking that they were being hunted by the devil. And... <laughs> But even despite the fact that they totally play it straight, I still, I love the fact that everyone talks like Shakespeare in that movie. Um, when I went to go see the Vich in the movie theaters, there were like three other people in the audience, like, like, and those three other people, like two of them were like two teenage girls who thought they were going to heckle their whole way through the movie. And like 15 minutes in when they realized it was going to be everyone just talking about Dost the Nice. Like, you know, they're talking like Dost the Thous and These and... The, to take thy kerchief off thy neck. Like, it wasn't the kind of movie that you could easily make fun of. And so they got up and left, and left the rest of us in, in quiet. And again, because they're kind of talking like Shakespeare. And also the dad of the family, and there's a bitch. Was it Ralph Anderson who played the Green Knights? In the, and uh, he's been a whole bunch of stuff, but he has his like, big monster voice, is, is, is the dad in the, <coughs> in the Vivitch. And between his big monster voice, which would make it difficult to understand what he's saying under the best of times, the fact that he's also, like, sp speaking Shakespearean, like, 17th century language, like, you can't understand half of what's going on in that movie. So if you're gonna watch that at home, turn that shit... So f don't feel ashamed if you have to turn on subtitles to understand what the fuck is going on in the Fitch. But actually, the dialogue is really nicely written. Very good prose. I mean, that's that's why it's so famous at the end. Would, would thou like would thou like to live deliciously? That's what the devil says at the end. But he delivers it so much more convincingly than I do. But um, yeah, that's a good movie. And then you got your Jasons and your Freddies, which, um, thankfully because there's so many of those, there's only one movie from each of those series that I really care about checking out every Halloween. And, 
the Freddy one, it's always uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors, just because that's, well, that's just the best of those movies. It's a nice sequel to the original film where uh, Nancy, the final girl from the first uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movie, she comes back and is kind of a weird time jump because now she's like uh, a professor with like grayer hair. And the setup for the Dream Warriors is really, really cool because it takes place in uh, a psychiatric hospital. And so these kids can't get out of the situation they're stuck in. And they're being uh, drugged by the hospital staff who don't take the threat of like, oh, hey, we're being chased by this burnt up hobgoblin who's trying to kill us in our dreams. They don't take the threat seriously. And so the kids are stuck in this situation where they're just getting murdered left and right and no one believes what they're saying and they can't can't not be drugged to go to sleep and yeah it's 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 unfortunate too because uh even though that movie i really like it a lot it's cut the kind of start of freddy becoming the wisecracker uh there's the moment there's a moment where this poor lady she her dream is always just to be, become a hollywood star and um, she's trying to watch TV and trying to stay up because she doesn't want to fall asleep and get killed by Freddy, but she does fall asleep. Uh, but she falls into a dream where she doesn't realize she's sleeping and... Was it Freddy? Oh no, she's watching... In her dream, she's watching a TV that's like mounted on the wall inside the psychiatric, like one of the rec rooms at the psychiatric hospital. And like, it's like Dick Cavett interviewing Jaja Gabor on a talk show on the TV, and it's actually, they actually got the real Dick Cavett and Jaja Gabor to be, to have cameos in this Nightmare on Elm Street movie. And like, suddenly Dick Cavett says, who cares what you're saying, bitch? And he stabs, suddenly he's got like the Freddy glove, and he stabs Jaja Gabor, and suddenly the, the screen cuts to static, and of course the lady's watching this going, what the hell was that? And for, she stupidly decides to go investigate the TV to see if something's wrong with the TV without thinking, Oh, it's Freddy, I'm in a dream, I need to get the hell out of here. She goes and fucks with the TV, and of course Freddy's head pops out of the TV, and like, robot mechanical arms pop out of either side of the TV and grab her by the shoulders, and he lifts her up off the ground and says, Welcome to primetime, bitch. And then he shoves her face into the TV. And she dies. And this is the start of Freddy. Where, who was it? Rick and Morty. They had the Freddy knockoff who walks around just calling everyone bitch all the time. This is the start of that Freddy. Where every kill has to be, you know, has to be ironic. Where, like, you know, where if the, if there's a teenager who pops up in a Freddy movie. And from now on, every teenager has to have, like, a gimmick. Like, I'm the teenager who's really into video games. I'm the teenager who's really into comic books. And so you know Freddy's just gonna kill them with a TV or a com or the, with a comic book or a video game. And this is the start of that, unfortunately. This became very formulaic for the whole series. And, and this is, yeah, him just killing everyone with the... This is kind of the movie where... <sighs> Freddy's not quite the hero, but, like, the sequels after Nightmare on Elm Street 3 all took the wrong lessons for, uh, from what made uh, Dream Warriors good. And, and even though Dream Warriors itself is a good movie... It led to all the sequels after that being pretty terrible. And Jason Lives, um, Friday the 13th, Part 6. That's the one, it's the silliest Friday the 13th movie. Because that's the one, that, that's also the first one where Jason becomes a zombie for real. Um, what, Jason 
dies at the end of part four for real because they were going to cancel this the series of Friday the 13th movies because they had been making less and less money and I think Paramount was always really ashamed of the Friday the 13th series they could be even though they made a lot of money like they were just so critically reviled that I guess even a movie studio can be like okay maybe this is this movie series is too much of a moral weight around our necks especially you know it's the early 80s it's Reagan Reagan America and everyone's all like moral panic about Satan worshippers and violence in the movies and so they're like okay we should shut this shit down so they kill off Jason at the end of Friday the 13th part 4 um, but that makes a ton of money, and so they say, fine, fuck it, we're gonna keep on making more Jason movies, and so they make Friday the 13th Part 5. But that's like a copycat killer, it's not even actually Jason. And so, uh, Friday the 13th Part 6, they actually bring back the real Jason. But since they killed him at, at the end of the first of the, at, at the end of the, uh, the fourth one, at the beginning of the sixth one, they just ignore everything that happened in the fifth movie. But at the beginning of the sixth movie, the his characters go to double check to make sure that Jason is dead. And to make sure that Jason is dead, they stab him through the chest with a piece of metal, like, railing? And when they do that, he gets struck by lightning. It acts like a fucking, uh, fucking lightning. What's it called when you put stuff on your house to keep your house getting struck by lightning? That's what a lightning rod. And so, like, something right out of fucking Frankenstein, the lightning brings Jason back to life. Even though he's been dead for, like, two years and he's covered in maggots and stuff, he gets up and... Yeah, that's 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 the start of Jason just being an, an indestructible zombie. But that's not the only reason. The, the actual reason I like that movie, because, it's yeah, it's got a real sense of humor. Right after Jason wakes up, there's this weird Bond parody... Where, like, suddenly the camera zooms in on his eye, and then the little Jason walks into his eyeball, in the circle in his eyeball, and then turns the camera, and, like, swings a machete at the camera, and blood appears. It's trying to do, like, the James Bond shooting down the gun barrel sequence from the start of every James Bond movie, but it's Jason for no reason. <laughs> and the whole rest of the movie, just very silly. There's, like, it's... For the first time in a Friday the 13th movie, you actually have kids show up at Camp Crystal Lake. And so Jason, he doesn't kill any of the kids. But there's one great part where these kids are like hiding in their bunks. And one of the kids turns to the other one because they know they're being stalked by Jason. And they know they're all screwed if someone doesn't help them. And one kid turns to the other kid and says, Well, what were you going to be if you grew up? And it's just like, wah, wah, wah. And like the movie, there's all kinds of references to like... There's a store called Karloff's and all kinds of like little tributes to old Universal horror movie and stuff. And it's it's definitely the most tongue in cheek Friday the 13th movie, and that's why I like it. So there's a guy who gets his face smashed into a tree and leaves a happy face. It's that kind of movie, <laughs> like like a cartoon smiley happy face. It's so stupid. And there's always the horror comedies, like everything else. I check out every Halloween. I try to squeeze in some. Kind of the funny, lighter kind of, but the kind of movies you'd hang out, watch with your family or something like that. You know, your Beetlejuices and Ghostbusters and what we do in the shadows and the Adams Family movies. Man, I'm so glad. It's one of the best things about Party of the Party. Hey, kitty, what are you doing? I'm sorry, a cat just showed up. Decided to want to fuck with my recording. Um, that's one of the. <laughs> I love the fact that Tardy. If it hadn't been for Tardy the Party, I may have never gotten around to watching the Adams Family movies or Hocus Pocus. And now all those movies are now a part of my. Every year, Halloween watching, because, yeah, as a family, 
That fucking shit is, like, way better than it has any right to be. Both of those movies, especially the second one, though. Hocus Pocus was good. I love... I can't... They just... There's news now? I didn't know they were actually making a Hocus Pocus 2. I saw there's, like, set reports, like, right now, as I'm recording this. Like, they've reconstructed, I guess, the old ancient village. Like, I don't know if they're shooting in, in the same town that they shot the first Hocus Pocus in, but it's definitely New England again, which it makes sense. Because it would have to take place at least within the same fictional town. Because that's the whole point of the Sanderson sisters are... Like, what do you do for a Hocus Pocus sequel? Like, obviously the Sanders sisters, Sanderson sisters come back. They would have to menace the kids from the first... Or the kids of the kids from the first movie, right? Was it Max and... Was it Max and Thora Birch? Max was the boy and they got Thor, her name Danny or something like that? I guess the second... Well, if the if the, the quote-unquote, like, struggle of the first movie, aside from, you know, everyone fighting the Sanderson sisters, was uh, the reconciliation between brother and sister. That was, like, the dramatic arc of that movie, because that's the whole movie ends with, like, oh, wait, I love my brother and sister, and that's the whole thing with fucking... Was it the, the cat dude? He's reunited with the dead ghost of his sister. I guess maybe you have strained family relationships in the sequel between Max and his kids. Or if you don't have Max and his kids, maybe it's Thora Birch and her kids? Because, I mean, maybe for some reason, maybe the guy who played the main kid in Hocus Pocus doesn't want to come back for the sequel. So you just say him, him and Yabos, they, they, they moved back to LA. So maybe it's the Thora Birch and her kids, and maybe for some reason they have a strained relationship. And them somehow... Would it be the kids? I mean, I guess the only... If you can find out another way to bring back the Sanderson sisters that's not just the Black Flame Candle, would the Black Flame Candle work twice? Did they not destroy the Black Flame Candle? You think that would be the first thing you would do after the events of the first Hocus Pocus? Is you fucking smash the shit at that Black Flame Candle. Also, you would take the goddamn spell book and fucking do... Burn that throw at the bottom of the ocean, but I guess not, because they just put that back in the museum, I guess, I think. Because that's isn't that the last shot of Hocus Pocus? Is that like the eyeball on the on the on the spell book like winking at you because it's been put put back in the case? Whatever, but I can't believe I'm actually invested <laughs> in what the next Hocus Pocus is about, so but yeah, I'm also like American movie. I know that's not necessarily comedy and that's a documentary. That's the movie about the kid from the Midwest, like, back in 1999, who's trying to make a horror movie called Coven, and it's all kind of sad because he's a drunk fuck-up with kids that he's not taking care of and stuff, but his buddy Mike Shank is a goofball loser, and it is funny, but it is also kind of sad, and I guess more existentially sad than most horror movies tend to be, but it still fits in with my Halloween viewing every year and stuff, but... Yeah, that's kind of it for all the movies I watch every year. They're the ones at least I try to make sure to make time for every October. There's like horror video games. Like, man, this year I was going to try to play through Castlevania 3. Specifically, I was hoping to play through the Japanese version of Castlevania 3 this year, because I've never beaten that game. Um, that's a very hard game. Um, I have a whole story about that, how when I was a kid. I, I actually got that game for Christmas, but my sister stole it give it away to some of her friends, so I not, never got a chance to play that until I was older, so I never got a chance to even try to beat it. But now, of course... Actually, I think I, Castlevania 3 is one of the games that I think is on the Nintendo Switch Online service. I mean, I obviously could easily just you know, play it in a million other ways, but... Um, but, yeah. Oh, no, that's what is the... They, they came out with the Castlevania Collection last year. 
which included the Japanese versions of those games. And that would be fun to play on a big screen TV with, like, the ability to, like, you know, s s save states and ability to rewind and stuff like that. Especially Castlevania there, because I've never beaten that because I know it is rough, because that game was hard as balls! Like, I only beat the first Castlevania for the first time, like, for Halloween, like, two years ago. And I've been trying to beat that game ever since that game first came out. It took me 30 years to beat the first Castlevania. God, <laughs> I only really tried to start beating Castlevania 3 recently. And I don't want that to take another 30 years to beat that, but... And, uh, yeah, even if I don't get a chance to play Castlevania game during Halloween, there's always the Angry Video Game Nerd Retrospective. They, they put out, like, a four-part retrospective about the Castlevania games. Uh, which is maybe my favorite Angry Video Game Nerd content out there, because it's, like, four episodes about all the Castlevania games back in the day, like, the, uh, the three NES games and the Super Nintendo game. And they kind of get into Symphony of the Night and stuff uh, towards the latter stuff of that, but... I guess James Rolfe was like me as a kid who grew up with the original Castlevania games and with uh, Super Castlevania 4, but then lost track as the franchise went on to the Genesis and stuff and only, you know, came back to play like Symphony of the Night at, after it had been out for a while. What's up, cat? Oh, is that so? What's your problem? <laughs> little cat here, so I'm getting all strung up. Little pumpkin spice colored cat, little orange cat. Cat, why are you shopping in your closet? Ah. God damn it. The perils of live radio here, here, folks. How are your pets doing? It seems like ever since the pandemic started, everyone I know has had a pet die in the last year and a half, and or they got a new pet, often because one kind of caused the other one to happen. But man, so many, yeah, it's been fucking, that and everyone having kids. Everyone's getting preggers in the last year and a half. Holy shit, I know so many new pets and new kids. Everyone's just breeding. Holy shit. Guys, calm down just a little bit. Woof. I'm glad people are happy. I'm glad people... Because I know some people have had problems trying to have kids, so I'm glad it's worked out for some people, but damn. But yeah, oh, is that... <laughs> Castlevania. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the four-part Angry Video Game Nerd retrospective. It's actually the most cleverly edited ending to an angry video game nerd thing I've seen where it's 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 all kind of nostalgic about you know what it feels like to be like you know three o'clock in the morning you've just beat a Castlevania game and you look back at, at uh, everything you felt while playing the game and stuff and it's kind of like nice and melancholy and, and it's not just it doesn't end with just a big fart joke it's kind of nice and um but yeah I was gonna try to beat Castlevania 3 this year uh, the Japanese version, just because I know that's easier and it has better music than the American version. But uh, Metroid uh, Dread got in the way of that. I was kind of surprised how much time uh, Metroid Dread has been taking up because that game is hard too. And I thought, I'm having a good time with Metroid Dread, but it was difficult enough that I would thought I would make it like maybe less than halfway through uh, Metroid Dread. But I'm actually towards the end. I actually, actually, I thought for a while last night I might beat it before to, uh, recording today, but that didn't work out. But... Yeah, Metro Dread kind of got in the way of me doing any spooky gaming so far this 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 month. But like like Resident Evil Village, I was gonna play more of that. Uh, specifically, I wanted to check it out. Um, I bought like the special edition of Resident Evil Village, which came with DLC. I didn't realize part of the DLC. Supposedly, I have to check this out firsthand. But supposedly, the DLC like unlocks a lot of the stuff you would normally unlock in a Resident Evil game that you would usually earn through multiple playthroughs. Because, <clears throat> I don't know if every Resident Evil game does this, but I know, like, 
Resident Evil on the GameCube did this, where, like, if you, you know, you beat the game, and then you'll unlock, like, maybe a special weapon and a special costume for a second playthrough. And then you could use that special weapon to play the, through the game a second time, and if you could do, if you, like, you kill so many zombies or beat the game in a certain amount of time, you can unlock another better weapon on top of that for, like, a third playthrough. And eventually, on, like, Resident Evil for the GameCube, the remake... Um, I eventually got it so, like, I unlocked everything in that game. I beat that game so many times. In fact, I remember specifically, uh, the last two things I had to do in that game to unlock everything that there was to offer in that game was, I had to beat the game under three hours and beat it under, like, with, in like, invisible enemies? And I somehow managed to do both on the same run. Um, I'm not very good at video games, but <laughs> being able to beat the original... Uh, the, the, the GameCube remake of the original Resident Evil in less than three hours with invisible enemies is one of the few feathers in my cap in terms of video gaming. But yeah, I guess there is kind of stuff like that in Resident Evil Village, the most recent uh, Resident Evil. But um, yeah, I guess there's a code that you could just like gives you like rocket launchers and grenade launchers and stuff. And that would be actually kind of fun to play through Resident Evil Village like <laughs> with like... Uh, like, never-ending ammo with a grenade launcher, because, like, I spent so much time with that first time through the game, like, conserving ammo and so scared. It'd be great to go back through a second playthrough and just play, like, Rambo and just blow away everybody. But, yeah, and there's all the old retro stuff, like Monster Party on the NES and the LJ on Friday the 13th, which is not a great game, but it's still atmospheric enough that I like it. And, yeah, Sweet Home, which I know that was never released in the West, but that was the Japanese... Famicom game made by Capcom that was based off the horror movie Sweet Home that eventually wasn't made by Capcom. I know it inspired the creation of the original Resident Evil from the PlayStation, but yeah, that's something we played for the Tardy the Party podcast a couple years ago. Uh, Haunted House for the Atari, um, which, again, maybe more... Eh, that's about as atmospheric as you can get with an Atari 2600 game, because it's not... It's, you know, there's bare, I think the only music in the game is when you start up and the game goes do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. And, like, the crash of lightning sometimes as you're playing the game, but I was just, the haunted house is always so great because you're just a little pair of disembodied eyeballs floating in the blackness, searching this house where there's no light in it, and you have, like, a certain number of torches, or no, a certain number of matches that you can keep lit and kind of guide you through the house as you're collecting, like, three chalices in the little empty house. And just this... It's just, yeah, for an Atari 2600 game, surprisingly atmospheric, and even the cover art is great. The floating eyeballs floating above a haunted house. And any uh, shadow gates. Speaking of running out of torches, that's something about the combination of the music in that... And despite the graphics in NES Shadowgate being limited to just like a little postage stamp sized quarter of the screen, like with already kind of low resolution NES graphics, they were still able to draw <laughs> enough kind of like kind of graphic stuff in that game that it's still, yeah, atmospheric and compelling. But I think it's more the music in that than, than, than even the graphics. But yeah, just the fact that you like, you know, fucking lady with. Like, the late lady skeleton comes up and grabs you by the face and you have to use no ghost on her. And, like, yeah, that game... I know it's rough because you can die... You know, Shadowgate was one of those original early adventure games where death 
was around every corner and you could die instantaneously without any kind of warning, which makes that game perfect for like modern save states and stuff like that. But yeah, again, it's kind of weird how atmosphere can go a long way for an old game like that, even if the mechanics aren't all that hot. But like, just hearing that music kind of send a little bit of a chill up your spine. Which is amazing, considering the NES just bleeps and bloops, but man, you put those bleeps and bloops in the right order and make them go, you make it put chills up your spine. Ooh. But yeah, that's kind of it in terms of movies. I always have a, well, actually in my little mini library here at home, I have a little selection of a shelf just dedicated to spooky October kind of stuff, and um, yeah, I got a couple books in there that I tend to flip through every October. Uh, maybe uses bathroom reading material. <laughs> so it seems, you know, if, if I'm not specifically spooked out by the stuff on my TV, I'll be spooked out by the stuff I look at while I'm on the toilet. Um, I got a copy of Dance Macabre by Stephen King up on the bookshelf. It's an old battered copy from like 1981 or whatever. That's a really cool book. That's actually, even if you're not into horror fiction, uh, Dance Macabre is really good because it's one of... I think it's Stephen King's only other non-fiction book, aside from his book On Writing, which I think is just called On Writing. Uh, Dance Macabre is a book that he put out in 1980, I believe, which is his oversight about the history of um, horror fiction and movies and television show and even radio and stuff like that since, like, essentially the 1940s. Almost kind of like, it's almost encapsulating, like, 20th century pulp fiction and horror and stuff like that and him just talking about like uh what was up until 1980 like the current um trends he saw in all kinds of different horror you know like published fiction and, and movies and stuff like that and i wish to hell that it's been 40 years since that came out i wish to hell he would come out with another volume of that stuff because i'd be fascinated to see what he would think about just all the other horror stuff that's come out since 1980 like there's just so much to talk about. All the slasher stuff, like, pretty much everything I ever grew up with. Like, I don't know. It's weird. I don't, I mean, then again, since then, I know he's had more kids and stuff, so maybe he hasn't been keeping up to date uh, with horror stuff, so maybe he doesn't have as much to say as he did in 1980. But, yeah. Being rich and coked out of his mind, maybe <laughs> maybe gave him less time to, to watch and read every new bit of horror shit that came out since then, but... Um, a couple of years ago, I found, I mean, I feel like I've talked about this, maybe more on Boy Howdy than on Tardy of the Party, but when I was a kid, my parents had, like, a little Time Life book about ghosts that used to, I used to flip through that as a kid and used to terrify the shit out of me. It was one of my first experiences with reading about ghosts when I was a kid. And about a decade ago, I became hell-bent on trying to find out what exactly that book was. And I started looking through all the Time Life books about horror, uh, about horror, and poltergeists and ghosts and stuff like that. And if I sound a little preoccupied while I'm recording this, this cat has come up and decided he wants to cling onto my arm as I'm recording. So if he just suddenly decides to start biting and scratching, I might might hear a little bit of a yelp. Cat. <laughs> this makes for terrible radio. Getting munched on by a little orange kitten. Uh, but not even so much of a kitten as a full-grown cat with full-grown claws. Oh, ouch. Okay. Uh, but anyway, I did find out what that book was. It's a book called Ghosts and Poltergeists. What series was that part of? It's a book by someone called Frank Smythe. Smith. 
Smith with a Y. S-M-Y-T-H. Um, the New Library of the Supernatural. I think this is a book... I think the reason I had so much of a hard time finding a copy of this is I think it was a book that was published in England as part of kind of like an English equivalent of the Time Life books uh, uh, published here in America. And, which I should have known because in retrospect, um, all the stories from that book were all about like English ghosts and stuff like that. There's like a books but like there's stories in that that book about like haunted abbeys and they're like an english farm where there's a skull that like has been like the skull that's been like attached to this barn for like the last 300 years no one knows who the skull belongs to or where it came from but if you ever fuck with the skull so supposedly you'll start hearing screaming from the barn as soon as you leave the barn and all kinds of shit and specifically the thing that creeped me out as a kid there was a thing about this haunted house in, like, London in, like, the 1960s where this ghost was supposedly leaving notes for the people who lived in that house. And it would leave these notes that were just kind of scribble-scrabbles, and you can kind of see that there was some kind of English text in there, but it was, like, almost like text that was almost, like, written by a child during an earthquake. And so I guess these the, the people who lived in that house... Uh, hired these ghost hunters to come and investigate. And the ghost hunters were somehow able to decipher the, these these scribblings by this ghost, and the ghost was, like, pleading for, like, a mass uh, to be held at the house and stuff like that. And I was always like, the idea that you could just wake up and a ghost would just leave you a note, and it'd be, like, this kind of crazy-looking scrawl always creeped me out as a kid, and I was like, oh, that's not good. But, yeah, so that's, that's, that's a book I found another copy of and I like to have lying around. And, like, the Halloween tree... I bought that, but I still need to read that. Um, I've seen the, the cartoon special by Chuck Jones, but I still never read, read the actual thing. House of Leaves. Haunted Air. Haunted Air is a cool book that is... It's not an... It's, it's, it's a book, but it's just really a picture book. Um, it's mostly just pictures of people at Halloween parties and going trick-or-treating in, like, the 1920s. So it's just a picture book of, like old creepy photos of, you know, creepy Halloween costumes from the 1920s and stuff. And the book is a little bit of a ripoff because it's one of those fancy art books where there's only like one picture per page and it's very, pictures are kind of printed kind of small and like most of those photos you can just find on the internet. But if you don't want to spend money on the book, it's a good, if you just remind, remember that book exists, it's a good reminder to go, go, just look up creepy photos of Halloween parties from the 1920s, because that's just always golden. And, yeah, the biggest thing I've always kind of kept around for Halloween since, since, goddamn, this book's probably, like, over a quarter century old, is In Search of Dracula, which is, um, a book written by Radu Florescu, and Raymond T. McNally, who were both, like, vampire historologists. They're kind of anthropologists slash, like, you know, they obviously, it's not like they're pretending vampires are real. But they, they are experts in the history, especially the one guy, Radu Florescu. I think he's, like, Hungarian or Transylvanian. And so he is of that area of the world where vampires, vampire lore came from. And so, In Search of Dracula really is just, um, they've written, written multiple books about the history of vampire lore, but 
In Search of Dracula is very specifically about like the history of like vampire lore in Transylvania and Hungary, Hungary, Romania, and stuff like that, and you know the history of uh, Vlad the Impaler, and even though uh, Bram Stoker, when he wrote Dracula, he really only knew a couple basic facts about Bram Stoker or uh, Vlad the Impaler that he was just a crazy guy who impaled people, and that you know his his he was of the order of the Dracul. Hence the name Dracula. Uh, and so it's not like he took a lot of other information about the history of Vlad Tepish and put that into Dracula. But they, they, they kind of still, the, these authors just kind of go into the history of like, again, how that kind of intersects with like actual vampire lore that came from that part of the world. And the history of uh, Vlad Tepish, Dracula, and where he wound up being buried at, and like what the remains of his actual castle, because. I guess in, in Transylvania, there's multiple castles that purport to be the actual Castlevania. Not the actual Castlevania. The actual castle of of Dracula. And they're all like, you know, they all look like Count Chocula's house. Whereas the actual um, castle of Dracula, it barely exists. It's like a handful of rocks up on top of a mountain. Because that's kind of the terrible thing, I guess... Um, that part of the world, Eastern Europe, is tend, you know, kind of prone to earthquakes and stuff like that, and Dracula, he liked to build his castles up on top of mountains that were tend, you know, if you build a castle up on top of a mountain, you know, a couple earthquakes, it'll kind of it'll shake your castle apart until it falls into the river below it, so, yeah, actually one of the first things I did when I, uh, got my copy of Flight Simulator for the Xbox that came out earlier this summer. I, I pinpointed the location of Dracula's, the remains of his actual castle in Transylvania. And man, actually, Transylvania is called Transylvania for a reason. The meaning of the word Transylvania is the land beyond the forest. And man, that shit is just like one huge fucking forest. It is a fucking amazing just how vast the forest covering Transylvania is. But, yeah, I got to see kind of like the River Gorge where uh, Dracula's, Vlad Tepish, his castle is up there and stuff. And it's like right on a staking gorge, like right up next next to a lake and stuff like that. And in the game, his the remains of his castle is just like a little pixelated gray smear uh, on the side of a, of a procedurally generated mountainside. Because I guess in real life, cause, you know, because like Flight Simulator just generates all of its environments through like google maps and stuff like that extrapolating that onto three-dimensional uh data and stuff like that so yeah it's just like the satellite eye view of a couple rocks what the fuck am i talking about in search of dracula it's a good book radu flaresco and raymond raymond t mcnally is very good uh the copy i have it's the same copy of of, of owen since like 19 i think that came out in 1994 like the last thing they talk about in there they're talking about like bram stoker's dracula i think they're talking about how interview with a vampire is about to come out i think that's how i know it's 1994 and um because the back of the book is also just a history of of vampire movies, and I think the last entry is uh, Interview with a Vampire, but yeah, it's a good little book, lots of little pictures and stuff, you just want to find out more history, about the history of where, you know, vampires came from, and how that intersects with the Legends of Dracula and stuff like that, that that's right there, but, and, man, monkey pants, um, mostly, oh man, I was gonna mention Over the Garden Wall, but Over the Garden Wall I do not consider, like, there's not too many Halloween TV shows, out there, I do see people pause it over the garden wall, 
as being a Halloween TV show. Of course, there's what we do in the shadows, but... Uh, Over the Garden Wall, I consider that to be a good post-Halloween television show, because spoilers for Over the Garden Wall, that takes place in the week after Halloween. So that's good... That's good viewing when you are still got fall, but it's no longer the fun part of fall as things are turning into Halloween, when it's kind of the cold and empty part of fall in between uh, Halloween and Thanksgiving. That's the perfect time to watch Over the Garden Wall, because it's the kind of sad and empty cold part of uh, of October, or not, I guess not October at that point, it's November. Uh, but yeah, music. Yeah, like I said before, Bram Stoker's Dracula is, uh, fantastic. I've got a whole playlist in iTunes that's just a big fat... How big it... Let me see, where's my... Where's my playlist? My Halloween playlist. 281 songs! 16 hours and 23 minutes long? 1.3 gigabytes of song data. Um, yeah, it's got all kinds of stuff. It's got Tom Waits and and uh, Nick Cave and kind of all the usual suspects. If you're Bill Mudrin, the kind of stuff you dump in there. The score for The Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. Um, I've got s several copies of the score from Dawn of the Dead. Um, man, fucking... Elmer Bernstein's score for Ghostbusters, which kind of like, kind of like what I was saying about the score for Bram Stoker's Dracula, and to a lesser extent, I could say the same this thing for Elmer Bernstein's score for uh, American Werewolf in London, but Elmer Bernstein's score for the Go Ghostbusters is just really nice. I mean, you got the comical kind of theme for the Ghostbusters when they're frumping around, but like the music for Dana's theme is all kind of like, it's all nice and beautiful and lyrical. It feels like October. Uh, it's got all kinds of theremins and there's kind of, there's a lot of very silly synth in that soundtrack, but like it's still, again, atmospheric. It's really nice. Um, yeah, scores for Poltergeist. It's funny that <laughs> it's, it's, I, I, I've also got the score for Ed Wood in my music selection for Halloween, my Halloween playlist. And it's funny that the score for Ed Wood was composed by Howard Shore, who... Was Howard Shore not the band leader for Saturday Night Live? I think that he was at least one of the musicians for Saturday Night Live. Um, but he went on to uh, compose the music for all the Lord of the Rings movies. And so you can kind of... It's kind of funny to watch Ed Wood and listen to the music and kind of see if you can kind of hear any kind of like similarities to, uh, you know, the, the evil ring thing. Ring theme. The ring thing is my penis. <laughs> Put that inside the ring and makes my penis invisible. Um. <laughs> I can see the Nazgul on Weathertop. Because what? They can't see Frodo until he puts the ring on, right? And that's how they can stab him in the shoulder. I like the idea that I get so scared I put the ring on my penis and they just see my little fat flaccid little penis dangling around and that's they're just chasing it all around a weather top trying to stab it but it's too tiny they can't stab it they have such a hard time the fuck am i talking about of course i got the castlevania scores and stuff in there for music and shostakovich's waltz number two my friend dylan once gave me a great copy of that music it's just like a ballroom dance thing that's actually recorded it sounds like it was recorded at a big ballroom thing because you've got this big orchestral arrangement of Shostakovich's Waltz Number no. 2, but then you've got these people singing along with the music that kind of makes it feel like you're at this big vast ballroom and the dancers are singing along with the music. It's so, 
Nice, and I got some songs by the Pogues and all that stuff, but... Actually, they're kind of one of my favorite things that I've got in my Halloween mix. Is an album called Calypso Breakaway, which is a bunch of songs of Calypso music from back in the day. Which, in retrospect, kind of seems kind of obvious, because this is some of the kind of music that could have been in Beetlejuice. Because, like, you know, because Deo and all the Harry, ba Harry Belafonte stuff in Beetlejuice is kind of Calypso. But, yeah, actually getting the actual real Calypso music from back in the day. Specifically, there's one song called Seven Skeletons in the Yard on that Calypso Breakaway album. That's, like, I love that song. That's one of my centerpiece pieces of Halloween music. And, yeah, so. That kind of stuff, it's always kind of good. But I think that's enough of the spooky, scary Halloween. I've been talking about Halloween for an hour and a half now. Maybe I'll just talk about, wrap this up with talking about some more recent stuff. That I've been watching and listening to, and I'll let you guys get the hell out of here. It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, is sponsored by Dolly Madison, makers of all kinds of neat-to-eat treats, and by your neighborhood McDonald's restaurant. At McDonald's, we do it all for you. Out of the depths of darkness rises Garganta, the true king of monsters. He's on his way, alive, in person, to scare the yell out of you. Garganta, on the stage, in Dr. Siltini's giant triple scream show, for the first time on any stage. The stage show that brought you the Frankenstein monster in person, now brings you direct from Hollywood, Garganta, the giant gorilla of the universe, alive and in person in a three-hour performance filled with more chills, thrills, laughs than you ever experienced in this century. It is engrossing, exciting, fascinating, filled with tense climaxes, gripping scenes, beautiful starlets. Yes, it's Garganta, this wild, inhuman menace, this 782 pounds of dynamite that makes Kong the gorilla look like a monkey. And that's not all. During the dark sea ants when all the lights are dim, ghosts, spirits, and vampires descend into the audience. You may find yourself holding a ghost, a girl, or someone else's girl. So watch out when the lights go out. But as Mae West would say, it'll separate the men from the boys. In New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, critics have proclaimed this stage of costumes designed by aliens. Yes, it's a stage show for every performance in the Dark Sea Ants, but the adult may be afraid to walk home alone. Now is your first and only chance to see, in person, on stage, and alive, Garganta, the giant gorilla of the universe. Watch for it. Remember the time, the place, and the date to see Garganta, alive and in person. Oreo cookies, creamy, crunchy O-R-E-O. Share them with your friends. And Mounds, Almond Joy, and York Peppermint Patties. Treats that can make this Halloween more fun than ever. Have sponsored It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. So yeah, stuff that I've been checking out recently. What have you guys been watching recently? What's been good? Well, I, the terrible thing is with movies being the way they are, I just keep on assuming everyone's just watching stuff. If you're watching anything, I assume most everyone's still just watching stuff on TV at home rather than going out to the movies, but... Yeah, any of you guys going out to the movies? Um, 
I don't know why I'm talking like you guys can talk back at me, but ideally in a perfect world, I'd like to think that, you know, you're, I listen to enough podcasts that, especially when I'm engaged in the subject matter of what the person I'm listening to is talking about, I'm always kind of like, oh yeah, I did that, you know, or like, oh yeah, I played that, that's pretty good, you know, I'm kind of almost thinking my response is in my head. So it's conversational to me, listening to a podcast, so... I'm kind of projecting that a little bit right now, but yeah, um, man, I, st I still not have been to a movie theater since, what was it, Little Women came out, like, a couple days after Christmas? In 20, god, was that 2019? I can't believe it's gonna be 2022 soon, it's gonna be two years since all this shit really started going down, but yeah, um, yeah, still not gone to the movie since, I'm tempted, I'll talk about movie stuff later, stuff I've been watching recently, you guys watch any of the Star Trek Lower Decks? It's pretty good. I don't know if you guys are Star Trek fans. Um, actually, I kind of wonder if Star Trek Lower Decks would be... Because my one complaint with this Star Trek Lower Decks show, it's the... Well, I was about to say it's the latest Star Trek cartoon. But that's not even true anymore, because I even think by the time this episode goes live, there's going to be a third Star Trek animated TV show on the air, which is the CGI animated... Like, Catherine Janeway? The, the, there's a hologram of Catherine Janeway, like, guiding a bunch of kids in the Delta Quadrants? Alien kids in the Delta Quadrant or something like that. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking, talking about Lower Decks. The 2D animated thing about a bunch of kind of second-string nobodies on, a, like, a, like, a totally second-string starship in the Federation and Star Trek. It's a very cute show. If you guys haven't seen it, it's... it's Surprisingly good. It's the one bit of new Star Trek that's come out since pretty much since Enterprise went off the air. Uh, that's yeah, whatever that's worth. That I think is good. Um, I still the, that first J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie is still pretty good, but it's kind of tainted by how bad Star Trek Into Darkness was. And I need to go back and rewatch Star Trek Beyond sometime soon because that was a surprisingly good movie that no one saw. Because, for some reason, Paramount completely failed to market it. Despite the fact, I think, didn't it come out, like, the same summer as, like, the Star Trek franchise's 50th anniversary? And, yeah, Paramount just kind of forgot it existed, so the movie just died at the box off, uh, office, despite the fact that it was pretty good. But, oh, uh, yeah, Star Trek Lower Decks. It's, yeah, it's a cartoon about, uh, essentially, like, the red shirts uh, on Star Trek. Like, it's not about the bridge crew, it's about, like, you know, the, the jerks who work the lower levels of a starship on a starship. That is, like, far from the front lines of, of Starfleet stuff. And it's really cool. The only problem with the show is it leans way too much on... Uh, references to previous Star Trek shows. Which, I know the whole point of Star Trek. It's this big franchise that's constantly building on itself. And so, especially after Next Generation, you had, you know, Deep Space Nine making references to all kinds of stuff that happened on, on, on Next Gen and... Voyager making references to everything that came before it, but like Star Trek Lower Decks, I wish there was a little more character building, a little bit less like constantly every five seconds just a reference to oh, because the characters tend to treat all the characters the characters on Lower Decks tend to treat all the characters and everything that ever happened in any other Star Trek movie or TV show like they watch them as a TV show, like they'll talk about like oh, that thing where Spock did this or that episode where, you know Troy did this like, <laughs> despite the fact that they exist in the same universe as those characters, I mean, I get the idea that those, these, these like, the show takes place, like, ten years after the end of, uh, 
the Star Trek The Next Generation, so I guess that's enough time for the exploits of even the Next Generation crew to kind of become legendary within Starfleet, so on Lower Decks you would have these characters who are kind of like fans of the Next Generation crew and like talk about them in the same way that people who watch the Star Trek Next Generation TV show in our universe would talk about them, but it's a little weird and this is a little bit so often that like... Combined with the fact that, yeah, the characters are a little under underbaked, it's kind of cool because the main character on Lower Decks is this is, is this quote-unquote tough girl named uh, Mariner, who's like this total rebel who does not want to uh, get promoted within Starfleet. She just, she, she just wants to stay a lonely ensign, and she's all kind of messed up. But her friend Tendi is the science officer who definitely does want to become uh, uh, a doctor someday, and... And this other kid, Boimler, who is with like in the leadership track for Starfleet to become a captain someday, but he's kind of a mess too. And then they got this guy named Rutherford, who's part—I can't remember how they explained how he became part cyborg. I guess he's—he's he's, the fact that he's part robot is what makes him a cyborg. Uh, but yeah, that character doesn't do anything. He's voiced by Pillboy from The Good Place. But they haven't figured out what that character shtick is. He's just for this very well-meaning guy who seems to have a crush on Tendi, the cute green girl who wants to be a doctor. But yeah, they haven't done anything with that character yet, and it's been two seasons, so that character's just kind of taken up space. And I hopefully hopefully they'll figure out what to do with him in the next season, because yeah, Star Lower Decks has been on for two years. And usually Star Trek shows, historically haven't really kind of kicked into gear on the third season gets pretty good so hopefully yeah hopefully they'll iron out the little wrinkles and stuff but um but yeah halloween kills oh my god that just came out god if you're listening to this if you care about halloween you probably heard everyone talk about how halloween kills is a bad move holy shit so halloween halloween kills is the sequel to the reboot sequel that came out a couple years ago like, what, so what, like in 2018, which is like the 40th anniversary of the first Halloween movie, like, was it Danny McBride, the comedian guy, and his buddy, they decided they would finance their own, like, direct sequel to the original Halloween that ignored all the other sequels, which is funny, because I think they even did that within the original Halloween sequel series, where they had, like, a reboot sequel in the middle of that. So this is like the third time someone said... Oh, let's do more Halloween movies, but <laughs> ignore some of the prequels, or some of the sequels. And so, yeah, that 40th anniversary Danny McBride movie, like, three years ago, was pretty good. It was okay. It was better than the actual original Halloween 2 that John Carpenter made, uh, you know, almost 40 years ago. But then they come out with this Halloween Kills thing, which is a sequel to the new reboot, and it's terrible. I guess... So I guess originally these new Halloween movies were, they were uh, announced as a duo. They were going to make two sequels to the original Halloween back-to-back. -back. Then like partway through making them, they came out and said, nope, instead of making two movies, we're going to make three. And it totally feels like what happened with uh, Warner Brothers did with the Hobbit movies, where uh, the studio executives behind Halloween asked the filmmakers to turn those two movies into three movies at the last second, resulting in this middle movie, Halloween Kills, that is nothing but, like, sloppy filler that's totally all over the place and does this dumb thing where they turn Michael Myers into this Im immortal zombie at the end, which is really stupid. But yeah, that's kind of what happened with the Hobbit movies, where the, um, those Peter Jackson two Hobbit movies were supposed to be two Hobbit movies, because even, even Peter Jackson back in the day was like, like... The Hobbit 
at the most you can stretch that out into two movies but then warner brothers was like well we can make more money if you find a way to stretch that out into three movies so then they had to go back and like pad the other two movies and then make up a whole bunch of bullshit about what like the, the middle movie could be about and everyone hated that shit and they're, they're doing that with this halloween stuff on top of stupid creative decisions like the whole the pitch for this Halloween reboot, the one that came out, you know, three years ago was like, okay, we're going back to the original movie. We're making a direct sequel to the original movie. We're getting rid of all the crazy, weird plot shit. And, like, where, like, Michael Myers was, like, practically a mortal zombie. And he was managed by a cult and all this shit. We're going to strip it back down to the basics where it's just Michael Myers. And he's a normal human being, but he's just nuts. And he just kills people. And they've already fucked that up. They've, they made one sequel to that, and they've already had this whole... Like, there's all these... How many kills is... It's poopy. You know what's not poopy? How, uh, Metroid Dread. I've been bitching about this game. Because it's tough love. I am surprised at how good Metroid Dread is. This is the new Metroid game. It's like the first 2D Metroid to come out in like 20 years. And I'm surprised at how high-tuned it is. It's, like, really, like, they expect you to have, like... There's no difficulty, it's just the one difficulty in the game. That difficulty is pretty fucking high. And for a Nintendo game, that's rare to... Like, this, some of the more recent Super Mario Brothers games, once you beat the main campaign, that'll often start a second campaign, where that gets super tough. But that's, like, after you beat the main game, and you can kind of, like, set down the game at any time and be like, okay, I beat Super Mario Brothers. I don't feel like doing all this extra hard stuff after you beat the game. But that this is, like, kind of the core of Metroid, uh, Metroid Dread, where it's, it's, it's actually kind of... Like, you have to be really good at almost, like, shooter levels and stuff like that to get... Like, these are really elaborate bosses where sometimes it could almost be, like, a bullet hell. The thing that kills me about Metroid Dread, though, is... Yeah, it's almost like, it can almost sometimes be like a Dark Souls or Bloodborne level of, like, you have to be really precise with some of the boss battles and stuff. But the thing that lets the day, the game down for me is the fact that the controls are a little bit, just like, 20% too over elaborate. And you have to do some pretty weird, because you get a ton of upgrades in Metroid Dread. Which is great, you get all, you're doing all kinds of shit in the game, you got all kinds of weapons and lasers and fucking shields and spin jumps and all kinds of crazy shit but the problem with that comes that there's only so many buttons on the controller and you have to do like some surprisingly elaborate button combos sometimes to, to like you know use your weapons and some of the bosses on top of already being tuned pretty high um then you also have to like okay i have to do fire this kind of missile and fire that kind of missile and fire this kind of charge shot and then do this and like each one of those shots you fire is a different button combination, and, and switching between the three in the middle of a boss fight that requires you to keep on slamming between stuff and could just be a little bit like... Yeah, ain't that... It could be a little... I think a little bit rougher than the game designers had intended it to be. Although, one thing was kind of cool, I'm getting towards the end of the game. I, in fact, yeah, actually, I almost thought I was going to beat it last night, but it turns out there's a little bit more I have to do. But there's this, like, screen-filling boss that I was fighting last night in Metroid Dread. Where, especially for a game that I was bitching about being so tough was interesting because um, after I had failed the boss fight a bunch of times, I could tell it was decided to go a little easy on me. They must have designed it where, because at the beginning, every time I, I beat it, it was doing these very elaborate uh, attacks in different phases 
that, you know, you have to learn. I mean, that's... Video games in a nutshell with overlap with bosses. Bosses boss will have, like, three different attacks. You have to learn to anticipate each one and react accordingly. And after I failed a bunch of times, the boss started doing, like... It would still go through, through the same phases of attacks. But instead of, like, a super lethal attack where it would, like, swipe with me at its tail three times and I have to jump over its tail three times, it would just, like, swipe twice. And then if I fucked that up enough, it would just, like, swipe once the next time... The, the, the next time I respawn and try that, the, that thing again. Towards the point where the boss was only attacking a fraction as much as it had been when I had started that boss encounter. So after, like, 20 minutes of me dying enough, the game kind of, like, went, okay... We're gonna make this boss a little bit sloppier and lazier so you could beat it, which I appreciated. I'm assuming that's what happened, unless I'm just projecting. But I thought that was kind of a. It's one of the few times in a video game where the difficulty is kind of like tuned that high where I could almost feel the game tuning itself back down when it realized I wasn't quite up to the challenge of the design for me. Which, I guess, depending on the kind of gamer, you could think that's kind of a big disappointment. Or you can be like me and go, Oh, thank Christ, you guys anticipated that. Thank you very much. I can just beat the boss and continue having fun. So, that's... That's... I thought that was actually a genuinely cool moment. Assuming that boss worked the way it, it did and I just didn't get lucky and the boss... Randomly, the AI got kind of stupid and let me beat it, but... But I, th I thought it was pretty cool. Um... Star Wars Visions... Have you guys seen the Star Wars Visions? They got Star Wars anime. Oh my god. Um, as someone who doesn't care about anime, really, I was really surprised at how much I liked Star Wars Visions. Um, it's a little lame that every story in Star Wars Visions... Uh, just for reference, this is on Disney+. Plus. It's a thing that just came out a couple weeks ago where... It's not even whole episodes. There's like eight like little 15-minute shorts from, I think it's like a half dozen animation studios in Japan. They were allowed to just riff on whatever Star Wars stuff they wanted to, and I guess everyone decided that they wanted to do Jedi stuff, which, hey, you know, it's it's Japan. And of course they would see Star Wars and go like, ah, we want to do the kind of samurai kind of stuff. But, um, but yeah, after the terrible sequel trilogy, like, especially how the sequel trilogy, you know, Force Awakens, The Last Jedi, and, uh, especially The Rise of Skywalker, Jesus Christ, kind of strangled itself with its lack of imagination, especially <laughs> The Rise of Skywalker. Um, it's really cool to see, like, a bunch of random takes on Star Wars where the these people are allowed to just, like, go nuts with the creativity. And, like, <laughs> I mean, I guess the creativity extended to, let's just all do, do Jedi stuff. But there's just kind of cool stuff I'd never, I thought I'd never see in a Star Wars thing where uh, one of my favorite, I haven't seen a lot of his stuff, but... There's an anime guy named Masayuki Yuasa who, he did like a show called Tatami Galaxy, and I've only caught bits and pieces of his stuff, but all of his stuff is super inventive, and it doesn't, a lot of his stuff doesn't look typically anime-ish, he tends to draw a lot of soft, fluffy characters and stuff like that, but he's really nuts, and I don't think it was him, but it was his studio that did two of the shorts in Star Wars Visions, and one of them was this very Mega Man thing about this little robot boy who turns out he, he becomes a Jedi by the end of the short. And I thought that was cool. I mean, it's very Mega Man. It's very, uh, like, well... It's Mega Man by way of... Is it Astro Boy? Who's the... Who's the character from Japanese? Like, the, one of the first Japanese animations. 
Is it Astro Boy? I think I'm getting that wrong. But it's that kind of thing. It's, I mean, that's what Mega Man's a riff on, too. Uh, and, but yeah, they have a kind of a character like that in the Star Wars vision about this robot. Who, like, lives, I guess, in the future long past after the original trilogy? Because there's a whole thing where, like, he's living in this hut where all this stuff from, like, the Star Wars movie poster has been engraved on his wall like it's a legend or something like that. But, yeah, no, the creativity and all that stuff is just really cool. There's a short about this lady. She's trying to deliver these lightsabers to these Jedi, and the lightsabers can change depending on the person... Or the, the blades of the lightsabers can change depending on the personality of the people holding them, which becomes a big plot point. I thought that was cool. Um, there was the, the... There's a Jedi rock concert on Tatooine, which is great, with, like, this very cartoony Star Wars rock band, which does... I mean, I know that these Star Wars vision shorts are supposed to be canonical within Star Wars, but it does, at least adjacently canonically, suggest that, like, just really bad, like, 90s street punk rock is a thing that exists in Star Wars, because that's what these, uh, these, these kids led by this, uh... Runaway Jedi are playing, and and uh, it's very cute, though. And, yeah, was it Trigger, the studio behind... Is it Kill a Kill? Is that the thing with the titty suspenders? The two girls, they got, like... I mean, that's half of anime is titty suspenders. But, like... They also did the witch, Little Witch Ac Academia thing I like so much. Uh, they did two shorts, one of which was... Uh, this, like, brother and sister... Voiced by, like, Allison Bree and... I forget who the other person was. They, like, have this deep space lightsaber fight on top of a pair of, like, twin-joined Death Stars fighting over, like, a kyber crystal. And it's great because, like, the characters are, like, running around in deep space without any masks on. And that's... I love how they don't even care about that stuff. It's just kind of like, whatever. Whatever looks cool. The animation that is, like, super fantastic. Yeah, they have this crazy deep space battle. And, and it's... You could burn through all of Star Wars Visions in like an hour and a half. Maybe not, maybe two hours. Because it's, yeah, eight shorts and they're all about 15 minutes long, so. Uh, but yeah, I was, was kind of surprised how much I dug that shit. Um, I thought this had wrapped up, but no, I think there's still a couple episodes left. Uh, what We Do in the Shadows, Season 3. I think it's Season 3. Um, man. <laughs> Is What We Do in the Shadows... Maybe next to MASH, the best movie-to-TV adaptation ever. Um, I was a little worried about what we do in the shadows, because I thought it was a little bit too replicating the formula of the original movie, which they keep the original movie in canon. In fact, the characters from the original What We Do in the Shadows uh, movie with Taika Waititi and Jermaine Clement they actually show up in an episode or two of the TV series. But it's a little bit of a thing because it's a bunch of vampire roommates, except instead of living in New Zealand like in the original movie, uh, it's a bunch of vampire roommates living in... Is it Jersey? New Jersey? Because like, there's a lot of stuff that takes place in New York. Sometimes they'll go downtown and things like that. But it's a little bit because, like, obviously, like, Nando, he's the big, tall dude. He's kind of like what the Jermaine Clement character was in the original movie, where he's obviously kind of like the Vlad Tepish... Vlad the Impaler analog, although whereas Jermaine Clement was obviously like the Vlad the Impaler, Bram Stoker's Dracula, Dracula uh, vampire. Uh, Nando <laughs> is this Persian vampire who, which is funny because my housemate, she's from Iran and she speaks Farsi, and and that's that's what 
I guess that that's the native language for the actor who plays Nando, the big tall vampire, and what we do in the shadows. And so, occasionally, when he flips out and starts s screaming and Farsi and stuff, she'll understand what he's laughing, what he's talking about. She'll start cracking up. There's an episode where his ghost... No, was it the ghost of his horse? Comes back! And so he's trying to talk to his horse. And, like, all the shit he's saying to his horse is completely ridiculous. <coughs> so my housemate Bahar was just dying, and... This is a very cute show. The actors are all fantastic. Um, everyone loves... Who's the main guy? Matthew Barry. I mean, he's always great, even though he's incapable of doing but anything. He's just always Matthew Barry in everything that he's in. He's always just like, hello there. But he's very lucky that that is a very funny personality that is funny in multiple different scenarios, including pretending to be a vampire. Um, and his wife, oh god, what's her wife? That actress? She's my, man, she's actually my favorite part of that show. She's fucking hilarious. Um... <laughs> Um, but it's the only thing that's a little bit of a drawback. I think Kirsten Schall is like a new regular on the show. She had shown up in a couple early episodes of What We Do in the Shadows, but now she's like showing up in every episode, which I got nothing against Kirsten Schall. I love Kirsten Schall, but I got burned out on Kirsten Schall because watching TV with my housemates, like we were watching Boss Burgers, What We Do in the Shadows, and like I think even back when we were watching like Last Man on Earth, and a couple other TV shows, there would be a thing where, like, we would watch, like, four different TV shows within the span of, like, two and a half hours, and each one of those goddamn TV shows would have Kirsten Shaw in it, to the point where, like, did she get a fucking clone? Like, how does she physically have the time to appear on these, all this many fucking TV shows all at the same time? And so it gets a little bit, and especially because, again, Kirsten Shaw, kind of like Matthew Berry, she's got the one shtick of, like, I'm Kirsten Shaw! So it's like, she doesn't really ever change, it's just Kirsten Shaw just in black pretending to be a vampire. It's not like she modulates herself, but... Oh, uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, while we do it, Michelle, it's good. it makes me laugh. What else been going on out there? Deathloop! That's another thing I was bitching about on Twitter, because I just didn't love it nearly as... I didn't love it quite as much as all the 10 out of 10 Game of the Year reviews were out there, but good time with that um although part of the death loop man i don't know if i want to talk about death loop because that's a game is that like playstation 5 exclusive or at least next gen console exclusive and everyone's been having such a hard time getting those goddamn consoles i felt bad my pal annie old co-host of boy howdy she hit me up to ask if she could borrow my playstation 5 to play death loop and i had just bought it and it's one of those things where i was just like I'm sorry, I just bought the game to play myself, and she was, like, totally cool. Also, I hate to say it, but the PlayStation 5 is so fucking huge that I don't want to uninstall it from my entertainment center. It's, like, barely tucked beneath my TV, right where I work and, and play all the time. And, like, just, it's so big. Like, I don't want to even remove it for fear of, like, fucking it up or anything like that, because it's just such a monster to move around and shit like that, but... Anyway, Deathloop, um, I was unlucky enough in Deathloop where a big part of the, the thing in Deathloop is, uh, I really do, did like the thing of Deathloop where you're trying to figure out what's going on in this island over this 24-hour period where it's very Majora's Mask, where you're replaying chunks of the game to figure out who's doing what and where and on different schedules and things like that. But, because you're replaying so much of the game over and over again, they spice things up by, cr they created this 
other character named Juliana Blake, who is the only other character in the game who is separated from the time loop that your character is stuck in. And she spends the whole whole game just antagonizing you. And actually, her the writing for the main character, Cole, and his repartee with Juliana is fucking fantastic. Because she's... In any other game, Juliana would be the person... I mean, she does kind of explain the whole game to you, so she's kind of like the Cortana to you. But she hates your guts, and she keeps on joking about how much she wants to kill you. And so it's kind of like, like Cortana... But if Cortana just fucking hated your guts and wanted to fuck with you the whole time, which makes it a much more interesting relationship. Um, I guess in that way, it's kind of like, who is the person you're talking to all the time in, in Bioshock or turns out to be the villain in the end? It's a little bit like that, but more forward. But yeah, so one of the mechanics in the game is as you're replaying big chunks of the game, uh, this character, Juliana, who's spends most of the time as this like disembodied voice on the radio talking to you, so she'll actually show up in your game to fuck with you. She's trying to assassinate you while you're trying to assassinate other people. Uh, which is a very smart um, gameplay design idea, just to kind of mix things up in a world where you're kind of doing the same thing over and over again. But the AI for her was so busted when I was playing it, there were... I think I must have ran into her about ten times throughout the, my course of the game. Two times! I never saw her before she just absolutely wiped me out with like this dark black magic shit that I never even saw her. I just instantly dropped dead and never figured out where she was, where she came from. The other eight times, she she came after me. She got stuck in the geometry of the world, and so I just killed her. Like all, in fact, the challenge was trying to figure out what part of the world she got stuck in, so I could just shoot her in the head. And like, it was almost, yeah. Um. I'm assuming that mechanic would be more, much more interesting if it actually worked when I played it, but, but whatever. But Deathloop is, is good, it's not that great. But, um, god, what else is going on? Oh, man, Animal Crossing. I hate to say it. I gave up on Animal Crossing. I mean, it's been a year and a half, but holy shit. After a year and a half, I mean, there's a lot of stuff to do in Animal Crossing, but even after a year and a half, you kind of run out of stuff to do. The, the thing that happened in Animal Crossing was... Um, I had long since collected all the fossils. I had collected all the bugs. Um, there were a couple bugs and... Oh, God. Bugs. Bugs and fish. There was a couple left that I had missed last August that I had to collect this previous August. And I finally... Yeah, this pre the, the, this most recent August, I finally finished my collection of all the, the bugs and fish and stuff in Animal Crossing. I essentially completed everything I needed for the museum every exhibit um and so by my metric that i think that counts as having beat animal crossing um which kind of sucked because the only reason i could get all the stuff for the art museum in the uh museum in animal crossing was uh the, I, i've talking to other people online and stuff it seems like the way the art collection stuff in animal crossing works is that each town gets a very small pool of artwork that'll appear in your town at Red's. He's the guy who shows up with the little boat to sell you artwork and stuff like that. And I think the idea is because you're just given this very narrow pool of, of artwork to draw from that it will ever naturally appear in your town. They're trying to justify you collecting with your friends online, trading with other people online. But since Nintendo kind of abandoned the game, there's no one playing online. And so if you want to collect all the artwork there is in the game, you pretty much have to go to like a third-party service, like there's a thing called Nookazon, where a bunch of players got together and created their own like third-party marketplace, 
where you can trade items and stuff with people, even like trade villagers and stuff. And that was the only way, because by the time I really started collecting artwork and stuff, getting serious about collecting, trying to fill out the art collection in my town, they, all my friends had stopped playing. And even my friend, well, my friend Dan, Daniel's my co-host on the podcast, you guys know Daniel. Uh, he was still playing and he was trying to collect everything. And like, I had like, even between all the artwork, the pools of artwork that he and I had access to, combining our efforts together, we still were missing like half the stuff, half the artwork in the game. And so, yeah, just the multiplayer died, and it was kind of a bummer, but that that kind of makes the news about the new Animal Crossing DLC even that much more bummer. Because uh, as I'm recording this, just a couple days ago, um, Nintendo announced uh, Animal Crossing DLC news, which is not that big of a bummer, because there's a ton of stuff they're adding into the game. Um, it's essentially the same update for Animal Crossing New Horizons as was uh, the last big update to the New Leaf version of Animal Crossing on the 3DS. A couple years after that game came out for the 3DS, they came out with this huge update that added all this new stuff that I never really got to see because by, by the time they put out that update, I had stopped playing. But, um, yeah, this is a big hearty 2.0 update for New Horizons that adds... The roost with Brewster into the museum. I guess there you can like scan in amiibos, and I don't think they've said anything about what you can do in the roost other than scan, yeah, scan amiibos in and have coffee with other villagers, and that's it. Because I know in like one of the other Animal Crossings, you could like get a job at the roost and do stuff, and I don't think they said anything about that. And there's all kinds of stuff like fucking, uh, like Capman's in there. And they added a new mechanic in the game. Excuse me for a second. I'll crack open it. Frosty beverage. Um, yeah, Cap'n. Cap'n's my favorite Animal Crossing game uh, character. I'm glad that he's back in the game. Yeah, and they're adding a thing where you can go to special islands now, where island, islands will have different time of day and different weather and stuff. So if you need like, if you need to like farm like winter crystals to craft stuff at Christmas. But it's not Christmas, you could just go off and find, like, a Christmas island, I guess. And, like, collect those crystals, I guess. And stuff like that, that's cool. But, what else? Gyroids. Which, gyroids don't do anything, they just make silly sounds. But everyone was upset this is going to be the first Animal Crossing without gyroids, but they're bringing them back. Um, the ability to farm and cook. Which, that's cool. That's something That's something that people have been data mining since last year when they added pumpkins to the game. Because there was all kinds of code to, like, farm other stuff. But, like, so everyone was in there, like, they, they, they've definitely got data stuff in there in the game to let you do all kinds of farming. But they just haven't put that content in there yet. So now that's, that's in there. The only unfortunate thing is there's nothing to do with any of that stuff. Because... Anything you make or build in the in Animal Crossing New Horizons, your villagers largely ignore. Um, I'm assuming all the stuff you can cook, like you'll be able to eat for yourself. But you'd, like, there's the only benefit to that is if like you'll get extra energy, which lets you cut down trees. And that's the only benefit to eating in the game. And so I guess all the stuff you'll be farming and cooking will just be stuff to like decorate your house with if you want to like. I mean, I guess that helps me because I've got like a little animal. I've got a little Iron Chef. Uh, display on my island, and so now I can create a whole bunch of new foods I can decorate that Iron Chef thing with, but aside from that, like, yeah, the, so that brings me to my big point, that 
the one thing that I don't think they seem to have touched upon at all with this new update, there's absolutely nothing in regards to multiplayer. Uh, no voice chat, no nothing, no justification to bring people. I mean, hopefully the update itself will get people back online, so maybe, the, like, people will be playing again, so if you try to, like, it'll make people more amenable to at least trying to get together and go online, especially if you want to do art trading and stuff, but there's nothing to do. That's the thing that kills New Horizon is the fact that the multiplayer is just so clunky and just there's nothing to do with each other and like which again wouldn't be so bad but if you didn't have like collections and stuff like kind of require you to to trade with friends and stuff like that like the fact that they didn't do anything to make it it's, it's even just to not even make it easier to play online together but just because when you go to visit a, a friend's town there's nothing to do you can check out their stuff and maybe you can play, like, hide-and-seek or something like that. But even then, like, there's no voice chat, so you have to type in through the terrible in-game text, and it's, it's a fucking mess. And, yeah, it's, 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 it's a bummer. Um, hopefully, in the future, when they design a new Animal Crossing game, they'll be less weird about online multiplayer because the way they're doing it now just strangles Animal Crossing. I, what is, I need to play Pocket Camp. Well, I don't want to play Pocket Camp. But I know that's the, the everyone's comparing Pocket Camp to New Leaf, or New Horizons, where, well, that's the other thing, too, because Nintendo also announced, I guess, this 2.0 update is going to be the last major, not even the last major free update to the game, but the last update to the game in general. And so... It's so weird in 2021, Nintendo had Animal Crossing that would have been a perfect live service game. Which they already know how to do because that's what Pocket Camp is. Because everyone's been talking about how ever since Pocket, launch, Pocket Camp launched on iOS devices and on smartphones and stuff. That, I'm sorry all the cocaine's getting me right now. I'm getting all woo! But <laughs> yeah, Pocket Camp has never had a lull in its updates. And there's so many things to do. Whereas like... Animal Crossing... Well, that's... And I know people will be like, Oh, it's, 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 of course there's been a lull in updates for Animal Crossing. It's COVID. But that didn't stop Nintendo from keeping updating Pocket Camp. And so it's just fucking weird that they just let let the Switch Animal Crossing just die. And um, it's, it's good that they're coming out with this new update for the Animal Crossing Switch version. But then they're going to abandon it after that anyway. So in the long run, who gives a shit? Um... I guess there's a whole new Happy Home Designer expansion that lets you design islands for your villagers? Like, homes and stuff? I don't know if that reflects anything. I don't know if any of that stuff will carry over to their homes on your island. Um, but the villagers in Animal Crossing New Horizons are such zombies anyway. There's no real... I mean, I guess they didn't... There's a thing... They finally reinstated the thing that happened in all Animal Crossing ca a games, where Animal Crossing characters would, would sometimes invite you to their house, or vice versa, just show up at your house uninvited and hang out and shoot the shit and stuff. But, like... So at least that's a little bit something more to do with the villagers, but, like, all your conversation options with the villagers are just so stripped down from what they used to be in previous Animal Crossing games. Like, previous Animal Crossing games, you had villagers with, like semi-unique personalities and likes and dislikes that you could learn and with new horizons like there's like none of the villagers have unique personalities they just 
have like personality categories where they'll all have the exact same responses to stuff. Like the lazy villager class, which is my favorite kind of villager in Animal Crossing. They'll always say exactly the same things in the same situation, with the only difference is occasionally if they'll talk about their favorite food or something like that. Like one villager might might say like my favorite food is tacos, where another lazy villager might say my favorite food is bon me or something like that. But, like, yeah, if you get more than one villager of the same personality type in your town in New Horizons, they really feel just like the same character, but with different physical skins, and that's really... It's a real bummer, because especially if the multiplayer is so busted, that the only thing you really have is your villagers, and then if your villagers are kind of like robot zombies, then, like, really, like, what's the fucking point? At that point, you really are just, like, decorating an island that no one's ever really going to see or care about, so... Yeah, and there's a whole kerfuffle, because... It's the, the Animal Crossing DLC is going to be part of like a new like $30 expansion to Nintendo Online Switch service. It's like more than doubling the price of the service just so you can get like this Animal Crossing DLC that not everyone's going to want and some Nintendo 64 games and Genesis games, which is sounds like just like a bad deal. Like, I know Nintendo doesn't consider itself to be on par. Like, it considers, considers itself to be in a different industry than Sony and Microsoft. But when their online subscription thing is almost the same price as, like, Game Pass or PlayStation Plus, they need, like, what they're offering for that service needs to be kind of, like, equal to what Sony and Microsoft are offering. And I know Nintendo is like, oh, we're not, we're not part of the same video game uh, uh, infrastructure as those guys. You shouldn't compare us to them. But, like, it's hard not to because like at least with PlayStation Plus you're getting like a couple new free games a month Game Pass you're just shot with a fire hose of free games all the time and if Switch is only offering is oh you get some you get like the three good Nintendo 64 games that are worth playing and none of them are even beatable adventure racing what the fuck is the point so oof a do um yeah what else going on a uh, work in progress. Work in progress is a super cool TV show. I've only seen bits and pieces of it because I only see it whenever my housemates are watching it, and I'll walk in the room and they'll be halfway through an episode. Work in progress is a show that I think is on the Showtime network, and so I don't know how you watch it if you want to stream it. I don't know if Showtime has its own dedicated. God, it's so complicated to figure out what streaming where these days. There needs to be like a new TV guide just for streaming services. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Work in Progress is this show by Lily Wachowski, one of the Wachowski sisters from The Matrix. And in fact, Work in Progress is the reason that both Wachowski sisters are not working on that new Matrix 4 movie that's coming out in December. Uh, Lily Wachowski was too busy working on this Work in Progress show to work on The Matrix, and I think the world is better for it, because... I have not seen all of Work in Progress, I've only seen, like, I've seen, like, maybe... A dozen episodes worth of but it's super cool if only because oh man it's the only show i've seen recently the only tv show i've seen who features people who actually look and behave like people i know in real life and like in a good way where it's just very mundane down to earth <sighs> people and performances the premise of work in progress um Joshin and Bahari explained it to me. You could also just get context by walking into the show later on. Is um, The main character, why is her name Abby? She's this queer girl. She's like 45 years old. 
Um, I thought she was a lesbian, but I guess she's queer because like she talks about having dated some guys in the past and stuff too. Although God knows if that could change. And, yeah, sexuality is an always mutating spectrum, but. Uh, yeah, she's like just the, this this dumpy lady, kind of roughly my age. She's she's queer and she she has this family of friends who are all kind of bunch of fuck ups and stuff like that. And she just like this lady who just lives in like the sub suburbs of Chicago with like she she's got like this housemate who's kind of a fucked up. Is she like alcoholic or something like that? And it's one of the shows where the first show that I've seen that kind of organically worked in COVID into it because like. Uh, the, 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 like in the middle of one of the seasons like suddenly like in the background you hear people on the on the tvs and stuff talking about like oh there's some kind of weird disease going on in china and then finally after a couple episodes like the the the, the pandemic lockdown starts to happen and at first the the main characters are all kind of like treating it like oh hey free time off Woo. and in fact they, there's this whole thing about how um because the lockdown starts uh, the two of the main characters go off and buy a bunch of booze at the local, uh, uh, liquor store, and they decide that they're gonna be at the liquor fairies for all their friends and just drop off a whole bunch of booze at all their friends' house, just so, so they have a fresh supply of booze to weather the pandemic lockdown with, of course, not knowing how long the lockdown's gonna last. They have no idea what, what they're in store, store uh, what, what they're in store for, so just, it's kind of funny to see that, but, um... Yeah, the main character, she gets a phone call right after they're, they're busy, right after they're finished handing out their whole booze. Their dad's in the hospital, and of course you think it's COVID, but no, it turns out her dad tried to kill herself. And that's the big thing about work in progress. It's suicide, <laughs> suicide trigger warning, but like, yeah, the main character, the whole setup of the show is that this main character of the show, the, the queer lady, she's super OCD, and she's got all kinds of problems like that, and she's... I I don't know what happened, but, like, she wound up with, like, a jar of pistachios. And she told herself that she was going to take one pistachio out of the jar. And by the time she was done pistachios, she was going to throw the last pistachio away. That was going to be the day she kills herself. And that, like, she was using the, the, the this pistachios as a countdown to try to enjoy as much of life as she could before she ran out of pistachios and had to kill herself. That's what, I think that's how the first season started, because I missed a lot of part of the... Obviously that runs out because part of the time, uh, this is part of the show I'm watching right now. She's run out of pistachios, but she's still hanging on. But, yeah, there's no... There's no big hook to the show or anything like that. There's no big... Like, it's just people living life in the early 21st century where things are kind of fucked up in America, and a lot of people are queer and stuff like that, and it's just... Yeah, I don't know. It's 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 the most. Don't want to say comforting because everyone on that show is kind of fucked up, but like, I it just feels like one of the more real things I've seen recently. And oh man, speaking of which, on a related note, was it what's the show that was on HBO Max about the guy who deals pot, which sounds like a terrible premise for a show. Is it High Society? What the fuck was that? That was also good. Not because, like, I care much about dealing pot, but that was a great, almost, like, anthology show about this pot dealer who just goes around dealing pot and, like, all the little anthology stories with each new episode would be about, like, different people who's delivering pot to. And a very just human show. That's what made me think about work in progress. It's just the most human thing I've seen on TV recently, where it just... It's not, like, super profound. It doesn't... It's not trying to blow your mind with, like, trying to be as gritty or as crazy as possible. It's just... Very grounded, down to earth, without taking itself too seriously, but just 
I don't know. It's very important. It's it's funny how so completely the opposite end of the spectrum it is from the Matrix that I could totally see why Lily Wachowski was like, no, I want to stick with this. I don't want to abandon this just to make, you know, Matrix 4. And so I'm glad that she made that decision. Cat, you came back. What's wrong? You're out in the cold. It's I've been talking for so long. It's actually gotten dark in the house. So I think the cat may be upset that she's been... Not she. It's a he. You're a beautiful little boy. You've been in the cold and in the dark. Welcome back. Um, yeah. Speaking of animated stuff, uh, there was Marvel's What If, which, yeah, despite the stiff animation and sometimes awful voice acting from some of the MCU stars, man, Sebastian Stan, the guy who plays... What does he play? He's not the... You know, he's the Winter Soldier. Man, he is not cut out to be a voice actor. Holy shit. Um, I thought it was actually a cool little show. Um, I was digging it precisely because it was the one MCU thing out there that seemed to be purely episodic, and that you could watch in any order you like. Like, it didn't matter. You didn't have to, like, worry about skipping an episode because it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a little MCU anthology show. But then the season finale happened, and they did this big alternate universe endgame thing where they tied in all the different plot threads from all the different, like, individual episodes into one big overarching story. Which, I know that's the MCU's thing, but that was a little disappointing for this anthology show. It's like it's like if you would watch the season of the, the Twilight Zone, and then the last two episodes were like, Oh, it's all the characters from all the different episodes of the Twilight Zone you enjoyed this season banding together to fight, like, a bigger supervillain than any of the individual episodes. And it's a little bit like, man, can't I just enjoy a single goddamn episode of something without having to worry about how this is all going to tie into something else? Jesus Christ. So, yeah, that was kind of a bummer. And, man, I've already been talking for two hours, so I should probably wrap this up pretty soon. Um, one last little spooky thing. Uh, something I've been reading a lot. This, this has actually been my bathroom reading material recently. has been uh, my Ghostmasters book. Um, <laughs> Ghostmasters. Ghostmasters. Love the title of that. Uh, Ghostmasters is a book by Mark Walker. That's all about the history of traveling midnight spook shows that existed from the 30s to the 70s where magicians would travel around with a troupe of actors, and it would scare audiences with ghost props and magic tricks before showing a horror movie or two. Um, this is, yeah, this is a lost art that, like, no one ever really knows or talks about. I know very occasionally people these days will kind of, like, do a spook show kind of revival well they'll they'll like like have live entertainment and then show an old horror movie at you know at some kind of like movie art house or something like that but just the idea for the like like i would love to see a movie made about that kind of traveling show maybe set during the 40s or 50s you know about this little entertainment thing that you know trying to compete with the rise of tv and widescreen color movies uh, you know, with magicians and con men and stuff using authentic but old and creaky stagecraft. Be kind of like Ed Wood, but about the art form that... About an art form that really only lasted for, like, less than half a lifetime almost a century ago. And there's barely any records about how these magicians actually pulled off, like, the magic tricks that they would use at these shows and stuff. And, I don't know, it's just really fascinating. Yeah, Midnight Spook Shows. Look it up on YouTube, you'll find little trailers, but, like, 
There's, like, like, no video about what that stuff was actually like in the flesh, and the idea that, like, yeah, there's all these, like, third-hand descriptions about what these spook shows were like, and the fact that these troops had to travel around the country in little, you know, caravans filled with, like, ghost props and stuff like that. That just seems so cool. And, like, you had competing troops trying to one-up each other, and just, like, man, I don't know. It seems really cool. Like, really weird slice of Americana that is now lost to history. That was that would be almost impossible to recreate now, but I would love to see someone sit down forensically, try to figure out how they did all those magic tricks and stuff back in the day. And yeah, I don't know, it just seems really cool. So yeah, but yeah, the Ghostmasters book is super expensive. <laughs> Maybe I'll lend it out to people. My copy, I bought my copy a bazillion years ago, so God knows. Like, yeah, even like, I think that In Search of Dracula book got expensive. All these books that I have that are about spooky stuff are all out of print and, and super expensive. But, man, shit is cool. So, oh, God, I guess I should wrap this up. Um, The only thing I care about, the only thing that's coming out for the rest of the year that I care about is new Ghostbusters. Um, I guess the first reviews for that came out this week. They were all pretty glowing, except for one or two where they, people were like, this is... A, this is they were like, was it Miyazaki said this is a <laughs> this is an affront to life itself? Oh man, and it's also, I mean, at least there's not a bunch of dickbags protesting this new Ghostbusters sequel. Although the fact that they're only the only reason that they're not protesting this new Ghostbusters sequel is because it's not just like cast entirely with women is also kind of a bummer. But um, I kind of morbidly kind of curious because like. I, that last ghost, this is going to be the last thing I'm going to talk about, I'll sign off and let you guys go, but, the, like, that last Ghostbusters, the 2016 Ghostbusters movie was unfortunate enough in that it just wasn't very good. I still like parts of it, What's Her Face, McKay McKinnon was great, but, like, even the special effects look weird where it was all, like, LED lighting, it didn't look like the same kind of universe as the original Ghostbusters, and, yeah, they seem to be taking a lot more care with Ghostbusters Afterlife to kind of, like, really kind of like, you know, all the, like, the Ghostbusters proton packs and everything like that, like, the, 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 the proton effects, like, really just look like they did in the original movie, and, but, I mean, it's a little bit bummer they had to bring back Stay Puft Marshmallow Man and, and the Terror Dogs and all that stuff, but ideally it should be in service of a story that sounds like it should be a direct extension of the first Ghostbusters movie. Um, yeah, um... I guess this is a spoiler, because I, like, even before, like, any of, the, like, the any other stuff about the movie leaked out, like, there was one shot in one of the early trailers for the, for Ghostbusters Afterlife, where I was like, okay, well, that's obviously the story. There's one shot in one of the very first teaser trailers where you get to see these kids, they're, like, walking towards a mine. I guess it's, like, a mine in the same Oklahoma town where the rest of the movie takes place, that's the Evo Shandor Mines. And I was like, okay, well, so that's obviously where Evo Shandor, who was the, like, he only gets mentioned once or twice in the original Ghostbusters, but he was the crazy uh, scientist architect guy who built the Gozer Temple slash Dana's apartment in the first Ghostbusters movie. And this is, like, in the towards the end of the movie, they bring up the fact that, like, Evo Shandor, he founded a um, society of Gozer worshippers, and he, after World War II, decided that society was too sick to survive, and all this other shit. And so presumably, I guess that's the mine where he got all of, was it pure selenium that they built? 
Dana's apartment complex from, and so that, so this, so that's so presumably, so the town, the Oklahoma town that the movie takes place in, is is that where like his uh, cult of Gozer worshippers started? Um, did Egon move to that town to keep an eye on the mine? Was Egon murdered by the townspeople? I doubt they're gonna go that far. I'm sure they're probably gonna do a thing of all the Gozer worshippers committed suicide. Like, a hundred years ago. And that's the other thing, too, because when this movie, when Ghostbusters Afterlife was originally supposed to come out, I think it was supposed to come out, oh yeah, last year would have been 2020. And I think they mentioned in the first Ghostbusters that, like, Evil Shandor did all this stuff, like, in 1920, so it would have been, like, the hundredth anniversary of him, like, building Dana's apartment building and all that stuff. And so... <laughs> Spoilers for Ghostbusters Afterlife, from what I'm assuming. I'm assuming there's he probably built some temple to Gozer in that mine beneath that town because they're all in all the trailers. They're all like, oh, there's kind of crazy earthquakes and shit going on. And like, even one of the like the I mean, yeah, they have the terror dogs in the trailer. And the whole point of the terror dogs is that they're they they have their uh they're the what's the thing Silver Surfer is to the guy who eats plants. He's the herald. They're the herald of. Gozer. So Gozer's got to show up. In fact, one of the one of the trailers, one of the shots you see in another trailer, there's obviously Gozer's crawling up out of a fucking tube. As a matter, who do you get to play Gozer? Is it going to be a celebrity? Hopefully, no. They just get another D Dylan McConus type. So just some of the random Eastern European uh, pixie lady who's just evil. Although I guess he doesn't. Always, I guess Gozer doesn't always have to look. The, I mean, the version of Gozer we saw in the original movie was just like that. Wasn't the actual Gozer? It was just a random form she chose. Um, although, why are the, why would there be Stay Puft Ghost? Because would those just not be little mini ghosts? Because the whole point of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man in the first movie was that that was Gozer. So why would there be little Gozers running around town? It doesn't make any sense, but... Um, but that's, I think that was actually kind of a cool... If you're gonna bust your balls to make a direct sequel to the first one, not even like Ghostbusters 2 where it's just kind of like trying to kind of remake the first movie, but way shittier... That's, like, that's not the worst idea for a sequel. Kind of going to the heart and, like, like, yeah, I'm sure, like, Evil Shandor is going to come back, and God knows who they're going to get to play Evil Shandor. Um, God knows it'll probably be, what's his face? J. Jonah Jameson. Because that seems to be the kind of guy you'd get. And, like, because it was funny, because this is all stuff that was also in the in that Ghostbusters video game that came out a couple years ago. That, like, Rick Moranis, not Rick Moranis, <laughs> Rick Moranis is the only person from Ghostbusters not going to be in Ghostbusters Afterlife, supposedly. Uh, that was the thing, the Ghostbusters video game was the thing where Dan Aykroyd was like, this is the closest thing to Ghostbusters Ghostbusters 3 we'll ever see. Because I think the plot of that game was the ghost of Eivor Shandor comes back and sends the Ghostbusters to hell. And so I guess this is kind of like, I don't know if this is like, like, stealing plot points from that Ghostbusters game, or if it just happens to be a coincidence where everyone's just like, if you want to make a direct sequel to the original Ghostbusters, you just go, okay, we'll just do the evil shit. And the fact that, like, the movie would be coming out, like, on the 100th anniversary of the events of, like, whatever the hell evil or Shandor did back in the... This is... I don't think other any human being, including the people working on Ghostbusters, have said the words Evo Shandor as much as I have in the last 20 minutes. I should shut up. I should let you do stuff. I guess the only real question is, are they going to have a CGI Harold Ramis in that movie? The ghost of Harold Ramis. Because that would be... <laughs> no me gusta. Don't do that. There is a suggestion. I'm assuming you kind of see... 
Egon's ghost in one of the trailers, because, like, the character who's supposed to be Egon's daughter, she's, like, in a farmhouse, and she's, like, doing something, and you get to see there's, like, this lamp that's moving by itself next to her head that seems to be pointing to something, and I'm assuming within the movie you'll find out that's, like, the ghost of Egon pointing her, her towards something that he hid in the farmhouse that'll help her, help her children, who are, I guess, are Egon's kids and shit like that, so... But if they do that kind of thing where Egon's ghost is there but you don't see it, that's fine. But if, like, yeah, if you have, like, CGI Harold Ramos being like, I've got a ghost crunch bar. Uh, or, oh, God, if, if he's going to be, like, <laughs> eating a CGI Twinkie. Oh, <laughs> oh no, me Gusta, don't do that. But, yeah, it's kind of funny, too, because on YouTube I've been watching a bunch of... Uh, Adam Savage, you know, the nerd co-host from Mythbusters, I guess he must have made a whole bunch of Ghostbusters Afterlife-related videos, kind of helping advertise that movie, like, a year ago, but he's been sitting on that stuff because that movie's been delayed so many times, so now he's been uploading videos about, like, him hanging out with the Ghostbusters team and checking out their props and stuff like that, and essentially being a spokesperson for Ghostbusters Afterlife about how authentic all the props and special effects are going to be because they took so much care, and Adam Savage is jerking off all of their stuff. But it's just kind of funny to see from just the scheduling thing all these videos that he made, like, a year and a half ago that he now can finally publish, but... Anyway, that's it. I should let you guys go. And yeah, that was this week's turn of the party. We'll be coming back next week with the first four. I think next week we'll be coming back to talk about the first four uh, episodes of the second season of, of Avatar The Last Airbender. Um, I don't know if Daniel will listen to this. We get to see some Azula. We don't get to see Top yet, but like, we still don't know this. It's going to be so good. And after that, the week after that, we're going to be doing oh, Burpee. I'm tired. I'm winding down. It's been two and a half hours. This movie's like the length of a Marvel movie. No, wait. This podcast. I oh, am yeah, low blood sugar. I gotta sip my frosty soda. Oh, but yeah, this is. I hope you guys are doing okay. You guys called down the thunder. You guys said, "Hey, Bill, you, we don't mind you blabbering so much." So this is my experiment: be blathering by myself. Since start of the party slowly winding down, I don't think I'll get a chance to do this again anytime soon. But yeah, thank you guys. If you've listened this far, thank you very much. If you've stuck with the podcast this long, to not only stick with the podcast lo long enough to listen to this episode, but then also stuck out to this through to the end of this specific episode, thank you so much. You guys are very sweet. I hope, even if you don't care about Halloween or October, I hope you guys are having an okay time in your lives. Thank you, everyone who watches and listens to us. Thank you to the Jonathan Mitchells and the Catherine F. Kings of the world. I hope you guys are all doing okay. And, yeah, I'll talk to you guys next week. Take care, dudes. Woo! <laughs> <laughs>